All right. Welcome, listeners, to Episode 70 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sipman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Etherbell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. Well, as we were just saying to each other off air, this is going to be a quick intro because it's a long episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I think really one of our very favorites that we've recorded. So fun. The listeners were able to feel the enthusiasm in our voices, I believe. Definitely. And uh, why don't you tell them uh, what got us so jazzed up? It's our episode on Whitaker Chambers, the famous Hell yeah. Yeah, ex-communist, anti-communist figure, sort of a saintly figure on the right, the author of the book Witness, and the key figure in the Alger Hiss case. Yes. You'll learn so much about all of that from listening to this episode that I don't even really want to give anything away. But this is a long biographical and philosophical engagement with the life and work of one Whitaker Chambers. That's right. It's a cloak and dagger story about an ex-communist who became a conservative hero. And that's all we're going to say. We hope you love it. We yeah. certainly had fun recording it. We just want to make one or two more quick points, one of which is there is a brief discussion of suicide in this episode. So a bit of a content warning. When we get to the discussion of Chambers' brother around 27, 28 minutes, maybe you want to skip ahead just a bit. Yes, that's a good point, Matt. And in the same interest, we discuss it again at one hour, 18 minutes and 50 seconds. So there you should skip ahead 30 seconds and you'll be good. And also, uh, we did a lot of reading for this. I posted my pile of books on Twitter, so some of you have seen it. <laughs> yes. And uh, we mentioned the great Sam Tannenhaus's biography of Whitaker Chambers, which we draw extensively from. All mistakes, of course, are ours and not Sam's. Yeah. But also, you know, it just would be too laborious to cite every single thing we read along the way. But please do check out the show notes, the extensive bibliography, if you're interested in some of what we were drawing on. You can see what we were kind of stewing in for a few weeks before recording. Exactly. Well, let's get to some housekeeping items. As always, we're very grateful for our partners at Descent who sponsor the podcast. One thing they do for us is if you subscribe on uh, our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, for $10 a month, you get a free digital subscription to Descent. And of course, uh, for $5 a month, you have access to all of our bonus episodes. And uh, I just want to give a quick plug here. I just recorded yesterday an episode with my friend Susan Reynolds, a Catholic theologian, and I'm going to do another conversation with Nicole Flores, a theologian from the University of Virginia, kind of two Lent-centric episodes. So for those listeners of ours who really like that, kind of thing, please consider subscribing to hear them. Yeah, Matt's taking back the pod for, for God. <laughs> None of this Freud shit. Too much Freud <laughs> bullshit, Marxism. Let's get back to the basics of love. Just kidding. Uh, I appreciate our Freudian friends a great deal. <laughs> and as always, we want to thank our intrepid, intrepid doesn't even begin to describe Jesse's work on this episode, <laughs> uh, but Jesse Brenneman, our producer who put this episode together after Matt and I talked for like three and a half hours about Whitaker Chambers. Um, and and Will Epstein, of course, who does the music for the podcast. Yes. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Will. All right. Let's get to it. Here's our episode on Whitaker Chambers. Enjoy. Enjoy. All right, Samuel, let's get started. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. I'm very excited for this episode. I've been in Rome for about 
the past two or three weeks, so I feel a little rusty uh, getting back <laughs> behind the microphone. Uh, and I came back and, and got the flu or some stomach bug right away, so I was retching all weekend, and so my voice is still a little hoarse, but we simply could not wait to record this episode. No, and I think you sound cool. Like you sound like uh, like a different style, <laughs> like a late night, you know, like jazz DJ, jazz singer who's uh, smoked one too many Pall Malls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that we are recording this episode. It was your assignment when you were in Rome, in addition to <laughs> yes. Uh, communing with the divine to reread Sam Tannenhaus's Whitaker Chambers biography. That's right. I, I took that doorstop of a book with me to Rome. I had to pack another piece of luggage. It was so heavy. Uh, <laughs> I'm teasing. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam Tannenhaus. It's a slim 500 pages. And so, yes, uh, this episode is about Whitaker Chambers, who, well, we'll tell you all about him, but this is a character that I think pretty much since we started the podcast, somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew we'd reckon with Whitaker Chambers, and the time has finally arrived. And uh, I have to say, we want to give a general credit here to Sam Tannenhaus, his 1997 biography of Whitaker Chambers. It's really an extraordinary book, and if we had to actually stop and credit Sam Tannenhaus every time we referenced it, the episode would just be too laborious and uh, <laughs> chopped up. So, so yeah. all credit to the great Sam Tannenhaus at the start here. It's such a great book. You know, I hadn't I hadn't read it until now. I have your uh, one of your copies of the book. Assuming presumably you have multiple. Um, I've had it for months, and I've like opened it up a few times, but it wasn't until we had to do this podcast that I read the whole thing cover to cover. I read every single word. Of course, Sam is a great writer, but it's also like this is a story. The story of Whitaker Chambers' life really has ev- everything. I mean, I was joking to you <laughs> that like to me his time as an underground communist operative is just as thrilling as his time as a fire-breathing anti-communist later on, because it's like, it has this whole cloak and dagger quality. And it's almost like the Le books I was talking about with John and uh, Jamel last time. The timing is funny, isn't it? It's also funny that it's coming so close to on the heels of our Philip Reef slash Freud episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, because I, I was thinking, you know, there's this great Kierkegaard quote about Martin Luther, the German reformer, where he called Luther a patient of exceeding import for Christendom. And I wanted to say that the Freudian Eric Erickson loved that line, and that's how, why it was in my head. But I'm tempted to say that Whitaker Chambers might be thought of as a, a patient, or perhaps better, a case of exceeding import for American conservatism. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Because <laughs> Freud would really have a heyday with this guy. <laughs> that is so true. But we should tell the listeners right at the top, who is Whitaker Chambers? Why was he so important to the conservative movement that is the subject of this podcast? Yes. Well, Whitaker Chambers was near the end of his life, I think 1957 to 1959, a senior editor at National Review. Remember, National Review was founded in 1955, and really Buckley wanted him on the masthead, wanted him involved from the start. The two of them first really struck up a correspondence or got to know each other when Buckley and Brent Bozell were about to publish McCarthy and His Enemies, their defense of Senator Joe McCarthy's red baiting. And I believe that Henry Regnery, the publisher of that book, sent Chambers a copy. And it was very funny, Chambers refused to have his name anywhere near that book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we'll have more to say about why later on. We will. But I think the force with which Chambers refused to blurb it caused him to write Bill Buckley a letter, kind of somewhat apologetically, indicating it wasn't anything personal. Yeah. So Chambers 
enters the kind of formal history of movement conservatism, post-war conservatism, through Buckley, National Review, those circles. But really, most of what we're going to talk about happens before that. And I just want to say, too, you know, Chambers is someone that, as a young conservative, he did loom large even then, and especially his book, Witness, published in 1952. That was one that, if you just look at the blurbs on the back of it, you know, it's just filled with conservative luminaries. And it was definitely a book that galvanized the anti-communist right. Yeah. We won't give too much away now, but revisiting it some now, oh, yeah. it's, its influence on kind of the psyche of the right, the kind of metaphysical universe of the right really came through to me. And I was telling Sam on the phone uh, over the weekend that the first time I read any of Witness was my senior year of college. I was going to uh, spring break. A friend of mine, his grandmother had a cabin on a lake. I thought I'd bring some reading with me. And at this point, you know, I was really probably at the peak of my like young conservative feeling a part of the movement kind of that's where yeah. I was at. And so I went into a Barnes and Noble and I, I picked up witness and I remember getting to this lake house and laying on my bed in my bedroom, opening up witness and the opening preface, the introduction, the letter to my children. Sam, how would you describe the writing? We'll, we'll say more about its <laughs> substance, but it's, it's apocalyptic. It's yeah. Manichaean. It's brooding. It's, it's metaphysical. It's spiritual warfare. Yeah. It's incredible. And maybe to my credit, I remember finishing that letter to my children, closing the book and saying, this is spring break. I got to just drink some beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not time to follow uh, Whitaker Chamber into the depths of his tortured soul. Yes. It was my first time reading Witness, and I was blown away by it. Also kind of similarly, like many times being like, oh man, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> like I'm not on spring break and in college, but nonetheless, <laughs> I had to take several sips of beer to get through it. But we should say off the bat that, you know, what Whitaker Chambers is most famous for, the occasion for him writing this book, was that he famously accused Alger Hiss, an employee in the State Department in 1948, of being a communist spy, having been a communist when Chambers himself was a communist in the 1930s and having conspired with him in various espionage schemes. His trial, we're going to talk a lot about it later on, was a huge thing. Like, every everybody was paying attention to it. The trial of the century. The trial of the century. <laughs> I mean, it started out with Chambers testifying in front of the, the House Un-American Activities Committee, but then Hiss was tried for perjury, and then there was a, a trial, mistrial, and then a second trial where he was convicted. But Chambers emerged as this witness to the fact that there had been a circle of communist agents within the federal government. And Hiss was the one who was, first of all, closest to power still. He had, at that point, been left the government to head the Carnegie Endowment for World Peace, but he had been in the State Department until 1947. A key player at Yalta? Yes. Among other things? Yeah. So it was a huge deal that he was being accused. And Chambers was also, you know, of course, sort of admitting to his communist past in accusing Hiss. And it became a huge thing for the country. The trial itself is, I think it's almost faded from memory now. I feel like 10 years ago, even, or 12 years ago, liberals and conservatives would still have had a position, like a sort of middle-aged liberal conservative, boomer liberal or conservative, would have a position on the Hiss case. 
You know what I mean? Yes. Like um, the nation would still always cover new books about Alger Hiss in a kind of like, yeah. maybe he was innocent. <laughs> and, and the conservatives would always take a new opportunity to hammer FDR, the New Deal and the liberal establishment for protecting the communists in their midst, including Alger Hiss. As late as uh, 2009, Sam, Susan Jacoby wrote a book, Alger Hiss and the Battle for History. Yeah. And in that book, I think... If I remember, it's about the like status of the case in American history more than it is yes. about his guilt or innocence. I mean, it's worth saying that his guilt was pretty well established at the time. Hiss's guilt, we'll talk about it more, but also in the 1990s with the Venona project, which is the decoding of various Soviet bulletins, it was pretty much shown without much doubt that Hiss had been the spy that Chambers had accused him of in the 1940s. That whole post-Cold War fall of the Soviet Union opening of the archives, I think created a whole nother round of his argumentation and debate. And again, uh, we mentioned that Sam Tannenhaus's biography of Whitaker Chambers was published in 1997. So his book really couldn't have been written 10 years earlier, at least not the same way. Well, the great thing about Sam's biography is that he's able to write the book with the assumption that Hiss was guilty and Chambers was telling the truth. But then the story of Chambers's life can be this richly complicated thing. You know, it's not yes. a it's not hagiography. It's like, well, Chambers was right. Hiss was a spy. But here's the story of this man, you know, and it's a complicated story. I think it's important to say right at the start that for conservatives and for you as a young conservative, the reason like witness fell into your lap is because Chambers is this sort of saintly figure, this figure who <laughs> authorizes the whole project. He's this witness against the communist threat and against liberalism as such. And from the founding of National Review on, Chambers is this figure who authorizes, he, he gives, like you were saying earlier, an emotional and religious import to this crusade against the godless enemy. But Chambers himself is a much more complicated figure than he's sort of canonized into by the right. Yes, I totally agree with that. He's important to the right in profound but complicated ways. And as so often with the right, even their most interesting figures, they make them more boring and pat and yeah. frankly dull. And interchangeable. Yes, yes. But Sam, I want to pick up on one thing you're saying there too, because Chambers is an ex-communist, right? Yeah. And I think you've pointed out something important already with the kind of moral weight that gave him. Just as the neocons would later, the people will say, I've seen the other side. Right. And I've lived to tell my tale. And, and here's how we can fight them. Those people had a certain kind of moral credibility on the right that I think Buckley knew he didn't have that particular kind of credibility himself. No. And so, so getting Chambers on board with the project was key. Well, think about who's the masthead here. Wilma Kendall, ex-communist. James Burnham, ex-communist. Frank Meyer, ex-communist. Willie Schlamm, ex-communist. In a way, Buckley was actually the exception to the early National Review crew. I mean, Max Eastman. Yes. All of these people had communist, a Leninist, at least a leftist past. So I think it can't be overstated, and I think we'll talk about it more later. The figure of the ex-communist in this post-war period as a source of moral authority about the threat, but also as this kind of troubling figure because they had done such wrong, but they had to make amends, but they 
were so extreme in their denunciations that there was almost a flavor of the old Bolshevik passion, <laughs> Bolshevik passion in them. And we talked about this with Frank Meyer <laughs> and Wilmer Kendall, I think. The other thing about this is, as Buckley will often say, and other conservatives will often say, the right had no intellects. They, so they <laughs> yes, needed uh-huh. these like deeply learned, multilingual, bohemian, in some cases, cosmopolitan figures like Meyer and Chambers. And if you were smart enough and alive in the 30s, you probably <laughs> had something to do with <laughs> the left. And so it's Buckley's kind of good fortune to be born into a, a big family of reactionaries who never was tempted to be a left winger at all. And that's sort of he's that's why he can shepherd all of these tainted ex radicals into the conservative movement. Yes, indeed. But just to, to give a little more sense of kind of Chambers' influence on the right, it's worth noting that when Ronald Reagan was president in 1984, he posthumously awarded Chambers the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which I think just goes to show you how much of an icon he kind of remained, right? Especially for the anti-communist Reagan. And I, I really, what was very striking reading some of Witness again was how much Chambers' rhetoric was echoed in Reagan's evil empire rhetoric, right? The, totally. the titanic struggle between two forces, the fate of the world hung on it. So that's there. But also, even to this very day, National Review, the National Review Institute, awards the Whitaker Chambers Award for what they call Profiles and Courage. And uh, when we were researching this, we looked up who the first two awardees, the first one was awarded in 2017, the second 2019. The first one in 2017 was awarded Daniel Hannon, a British politician who they credited for his courage in leading the Brexit effort. (laughs) How's that turning out for you, buddy? (laughs) Yeah. And the second one, this one's especially disgusting to me, is uh, Mark Janus of the Janus Supreme Court case against public sector unions. Public sector union dues, yeah. So it's interesting. There actually hasn't been another Whitaker Chambers Award awarded by the National Review Institute. And the reason for that was that in 2019, when they gave the award to Mark Janus, Chambers' own children came out with a big statement and said, I'll quote here from their statement, all of us agree the efforts of the two awardees, and that means the Brexiteer and the anti-union activists, Quote, run counter to the instincts and experience of Whitaker Chambers. All of us agree their efforts have not matched his. Ouch. <laughs> they demanded that National Review take Chambers's name off of the award or else stop awarding it. And they haven't awarded it to anybody else since. In a, in a Wall Street Journal article about this controversy, the Chambers' children, so it's his son and his grandchildren were all involved in this. His grandson, David Chambers, said, this is about giving it to Janice, my grandfather was concerned about the communist infiltration in the unions just as he was concerned about communist infiltration in the federal government. But Chambers said that he had no qualms about the labor movement itself. His wife, Esther Shemitz, was involved in the Armament Workers' Union and that they met at a textile worker strike. Molly Chambers, another one of the grandchildren, my family was not against people organizing to improve workers' rights. They were involved in unions and supported them. And they also suggested that he would have been disgusted by Brexit because his whole thing was like, we need a united Europe to defend <laughs> against yeah. against the uh-huh. communist East, in sort of translating by the children and grandchildren to today against Putin. And so I think it's just sort of a delicious representation of what we're going to talk about a lot here, which is the way that Chambers is sort of canonized and cast in marble for the conservative movement doesn't really fit with this sort of idiosyncratic figure that he was. He did lay the blueprint for conservative anti-communism. There's no doubt about 
about that. And he was very important for giving it language, authorization, a kind of verve and energy. And, and Witness is, is still given out to young conservatives to read to get them lathered up and fired up to, to fight the communist foe. Well, let's really dive into Chambers' life. He was born, this is a key fact actually in some ways, he wasn't born with the name Whitaker Chambers. He was born J. Vivian Chambers on April 1st, 1901, April Fool's Day, as he liked to remind people <laughs> uh, in Philadelphia. And he was uh, mostly raised in Lynbrook on Long Island. And then he died, of course, July 9th. 1961, age 60, at his farm in Maryland. So he lived for 60 years, 1901 to 1961. And his early life, I would say easily, the, the great pleasure of revisiting Tannenhaus's biography is how rich these kind of early years are with Chambers, his youth, and then as we'll get to his time at Columbia University and kind of his early literary career. I mean, in Witness, the chapter on his childhood is titled with a, a great deal of understatement and irony, the story of a middle-class family. <laughs> and the thing about that is the story of his childhood is actually harrowing and embarrassing and troubled and tortured. His father was a deep depressive man, periodically violent, but very anguished and sort of weak. He was a, mm -hmm. a bohemian who was sort of cast in the role of a patriarch in the suburbs, who was also himself sort of constrained by the ill fit between his artistic instincts, uh, his bohemian instincts to the suburbs, and also his sexuality, which was at least bisexual. He had relationships with men, and as Chambers would find out much later on, in the long absences his father kept from the family, he was living in the city uh, with lovers. Yeah, his father essentially wasn't like advertising, graphic design, the kind of art director of a firm kind of person. And so the family home was out on Long Island, but there was a period where these absences, he had essentially a pied de terre in the city and would take up with some of his male lovers there. And these kind of tortured scenes in Tannenhaus's biography of Whitaker Chambers, or sorry, young Vivian, because that's what he went by, which Vivian. was a source of cruelty. He hated it. Yes, and a source of being teased at school. But, you know, waiting for his father to come home. It seems like there were times where the father knew he had to go home, but he would wait as long as he could. And then sometimes he just didn't come back at all. Yeah. You know, and the mother, well, how would you describe the mother, Sam? She also had a, an interesting name, Laha. Yes. which I guess it marked the family in the neighborhood as as mm -hmm. odd. I think I think that Tannenhaus said they were referred to as the French family um, because Laha had <laughs> yeah. a French background and they, they spoke French sometimes in the home. But also there was just sort of like those weird bohemians. They must be French. Because she had a past kind of on the stage. Yes. Right? Her dream was to be an actress. Yeah, it was a bit of a bohemian artistic household in that sense, a bit uh, eccentric. I would say his mother was more formidable in a way than, the, than his father. At least she had a lot more to do with his mm -hmm. upbringing. Um, she was powerfully sort of imaginative. Um, I think that she fed her sons in their sort of emotional and physical need <laughs> on sort of these dreams that she would spool out for them of next year we're going to own a farm. Next year, I'm going to return to the stage. Next year, we're going to move to Montana or the, or the Pacific yes. Northwest. And that because she had a powerful imagination, she would bring her sons, Chambers and his brother, into this vision of a good time just around the corner. But it never materialized to Chambers' great disappointment. And these kinds of visions of a better tomorrow were not really sufficient sustenance for the boys, who were both just deeply, deeply troubled. 
Yes. Yes. Chambers had a brother who we'll talk about in a moment. Sam, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but after you mentioned to me, I did read the Mary Kempton essay on Chambers and Hiss and kind of how their backgrounds were pretty similar. And he has the great phrase of shabby genteel. Exactly. Which I, I, I think gets to kind of the precariousness of their economic situation, while also their, their social station did not preclude these aspirations that we described the mother having, especially perhaps. And for the boys. You know, yes. The great Murray Kempton, New York journalist, uh, in uh, what's that book called? Part of Our Time. Part of Our Times, which is these sort of beautiful vignettes he writes about the 1930s, about figures who are kind of emblematic of the decade. Yeah, the New York Review of Books has an edition of it out. So Kempton does point to this fact, I think maybe we'll talk about this more when we bring Hiss into the story, that they both have this kind of shabby gentility as their background. Downwardly mobile, but kind of marked in his view often by a mother who had high aspirations for her promising sons, but who lived in a state of kind of disarray economically and who kind of were were clinging on to the kind of flimsy possibility of respectability and upward mobility. Kempton points out that it's, it's, it's more explicitly the case in the story of Hiss. Chambers' family was such a wreck. Their neighbors didn't think that this was a family of gentility. (laughs) Exactly. But that sort of precariously situated between the genteel, the bohemian possibility and hope and kind of a reality that is pretty bleak um, was definitely true for both of them. Yes. And I think that precariousness, because the father was semi-absent, it meant that like Chambers' grandmother came to live with them. Right. And, And some of the stories of her going a little crazy, you might say, you know, she'd be in the kitchen with scissors pacing around and Chambers would have to take the scissors from her. And and throughout his life, he still had scars on his hands from resting the scissors away from his grandmother who was in a certain state. And so when we see, when you mentioned like the kind of their place in the neighborhood, people could hear the yells, you know, and then Richard, his brother, Dickie was very troubled too and was a drunk. And so there was times when the father would come back and Chambers' brother, Richard, would be drunk and he'd beat the hell out of him. And those kinds of episodes, yelling, grandmothers with knives, kind of absent father, an eccentric mother. I don't think we need to say too much more other than you, you start to get a sense of he probably was exposed to more culture than many kind of quasi-suburban young men would have been in a strange way, but also it was not a a kind of happy home and not not a home that would make a young man secure in himself and his place in the world. There's a good line from Kempton's sketch, which is about this shabby gentility, which he suggests Hiss and Chambers shared. Here's the quote. By adherence to a special set of rules, the child of the shabby genteel can sometimes leap across the time which has passed by his family and function in the real world without doing violence to the hopes his mother held out for him. But those who cannot live within this pattern are the freaks and the poets, and they travel a difficult road to peace. (laughs) It's an understatement to say that Whitaker Chambers traveled a difficult road to peace if he ever found it. But, you know, despite the precariousness, the shabby gentility we've been describing, the father did have a pretty good job, actually. He just wasn't sharing the paycheck with his family for a lot of the time he was gone. Yes, exactly. And then there was also a point where the mother, Laha, was a government social worker. So in terms of, like, middle-class 
life, a father with a white collar job in the, in Manhattan, mother who had a decent government job as a social worker, they could afford to send him to college. And, and indeed, the mother especially had high aspirations for Chambers and wanted him to go to Williams, where he very, very briefly attended. Yeah. Um, but it, it just wasn't for him. And so much to her disappointment, <laughs> he ended up at Columbia. Now, why was she disappointed? Because he picked the Ivy League school with the most Jews, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if you were setting me up to have to say it. Yeah, oh, yeah, no. was, don't go to Columbia with all those Jews. But yeah, no, that's true. And in fact, it was fateful, surely, truly, um, truly. for Chambers. I mean, it should be said, he didn't like Williams. He didn't like being in this sort of yes. bu- bucolic, small campus. He wanted to be in the city. He wanted to be surrounded by freaks and poets, as uh, Kempton would say. And he found them at Columbia, many of them being Jews. And for him, he really didn't know any Jews up to that point. And they thrilled him, you know, because they were really learned. And he thrilled them. Right. That's what's so interesting. So he has this, yes. he has this phrase he uses for his friends at Columbia in Witness, Ernst Dimension which means serious men. <laughs> it's a phrase he picked up in the communist underground, uh-huh. obviously German. But these young you know, boys, basically, Jewish boys, to him, they had read so much and they knew so much and they knew so much about art and they were excited about the possibility of ideas. But as you know, what's interesting is that he was the first smart Gentile they'd ever met. <laughs> yes, yes. Someone who could kind of meet them on their own terms and go toe-to-toe with them, you know, in the dorm room bowl sessions. And Yeah. And we should just tick off some of these names. I mean, he was uh, at Columbia in the early 1920s. It's so 1925 when he leaves Columbia University without a degree. That's a story in itself. But his kind of contemporaries, near-contemporaries professors, his fellow students were Lionel Trilling, Jacques Barzon, his close teacher was a then very young Mark Van Doren, right? The great scholar of poetry. And himself a great poet. Yes, himself a great poet. His closest friend, I think, continued to be a close friend, Meyer Shapiro, the art yes. historian. Mortimer J. Adler was oh, yes. his classmate, the philosopher, and sort of one of the key founders of the great books kind of <laughs> yes. philosophical tradition. Clifton Fadiman was in his class, I think. Yes, because it was it was Fadiman who got him to translate Bambi. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, when he was a More editor, on that book editor. <laughs> yeah, but um, quite a heady atmosphere surrounded by brilliant Jews. And many of these people, Trilling didn't like him. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but a lot of these people remained his friends, even as he became a communist after he left. Yes. And it should be noted, too, I think one of the reasons that he impressed his Ernst Dimension friends was that he had traveled a bit in the United States before he went to Columbia. He basically run away from home and traveled to New Orleans and to Washington, D.C., and sort of hung out with, like, proletarians and layabouts and kind of presented himself as this, as one does when they're in college, much more so than was the case, this kind of worldly uh, figure who had been in touch with the real kind of American Vulcan and, and the sort of the seedy underbelly of, of America. Yeah, that's a good point, Sam. I, I forgot to mention that kind of post high school, relatively brief sojourn where he tried to, you know, uh, work on the railroad tracks or get a job in New Orleans on a port. But also, I think a key thing is he also had this kind of precocious love for languages. Partly this kind of mentor he had when he was, you know, as a teenager who kind of introduced him to books and languages in the world. So he had kind of rudimentary German. He seemed to have a knack for language. Uh, totally. You know, uh, European languages, especially romance languages. And, and so he, he had a, 
at least a, a bit of a taste of kind of European literature, European languages, and, you know, brought that with him to the dorm rooms at Columbia. And I think that was one reason he could impress his kind of bookish Jewish friends. And then he traveled to Europe with a couple of his bookish Jewish friends. And that was also huge, I think, for him, too, because they were in Paris. They were in Berlin. In the 20s, you know. In the 20s. End of the Weimar period. And, uh, of course, he fell in love with European ideas and European literature. I think uh, when we talk about Witness, it's definitely notable how sort of European the influences of that book are. It doesn't really read like an American book in certain respects. It has so much gloom and kind of (laughs) um, despair and sort of like seriousness and irony that all market as more European than than American. Well, you know, it is interesting to say, though, since his political trajectory is so important, he didn't enter Colombia as a communist or a leftist. He was uh, very much a Christian of some kind, but it was during his time at Columbia. By the time he left, and in fact, it's kind of why he left, he became kind of a more scandalous... He never went to class, basically, or he picked and choose which classes he would go to. He stole books from the library. He kind of did his own course of study, you might say. (laughs) And so he was always on kind of tenuous academic ground. You know, yeah, exactly, Matt. He was kind of in a precarious position academically often. He had a good relationship with Van Doren, who believed in his writing. He was writing poetry. He was writing short stories. But fatefully, he wrote this story in the literary magazine that he was an editor at, which was a very 1920s young person kind of thing to do. Uh, It was like, it was, they were called themselves profanists, right? It was basically just a deeply blasphemous, there was sexual content, this story which was too much for Columbia. (laughs) Created a whole controversy. He wrote it under an assumed name, but everybody knew it was him. It was a very Irish Catholic name, right? Like Jack O'Brien or something. So the profanity of it uh, was added added to that was a sort of anti-Catholic. People thought it was like a dangerous popery and and blasphemy at the same time. And he was forced to renounce his editorship, but he was so mad about it that he basically left Columbia. But you know, I mean, it it is important when we think about the sort of historical trajectory that's going on here in this individual life that we don't talk about the 1920s very much on this podcast. Most people don't talk about, we don't really think about the 1920s that much. You know, the roaring 20s, we think of it as the hubris before the fall of the depression, but the intellectual and literary atmosphere was all about kind of transgression. It's really the flourishing of literary modernism. So it was all about kind of individual expression against the kind of weight of Christian conformity. And so, you know, the 20s were, from the standpoint of the 1930s, when everyone got political and left wing, they sort of thought, oh, that was this kind of adolescent kind of tantrum against conformity or whatever. But at the time, that kind of heady, rebellious literary stuff that he was doing, which wasn't like explicitly political, but it was definitely transgressive, was a marker of the sort of intellectual movements of the 20s. He does leave Colombia kind of for good in 1925. And that's also the year he joins the Communist Party. And I think it's fair to say as well that in 1926, his brother commits suicide. And the closeness of those two events, I think it's fair to say he saw kind of the crisis of his family and the crisis of the world as intertwined somehow, yeah. right? And I, and I think it's especially one thing we haven't mentioned because it didn't necessarily 
touch him directly, but World War One, right? We are living in the wake of World War One, And we talk about the Roaring Twenties, yes, but I think for a sensitive person like Chambers, this kind of sense of like the world had cracked open in a way, his family had come to this place where his alcoholic brother kills himself, which he took very hard, you know, and they had a complicated relationship, but Chambers, I think, had a certain, well, he was his brother's keeper, uh, or had he had at least some of those impulses in him. And Sam, the title of the chapter in Witness, uh, A Middle Class Family, the kind of irony or understatedness of that gets at what I'm pointing at here. I agree. Yeah. So Richard, his his brother, before he killed himself, and he tried to kill himself multiple times before he succeeded, yes. which is really dark, he would come home sort of spouting nihilist sentiments to Chambers. So there's a quote from Witness where Richard is drunkenly saying to Whitaker, look around you, look at people. Every one of them is a hypocrite. Look at the world. It's hopeless. Look at religion. Nobody really believes that stuff. Even the people who pretend to. Look at marriage. Look at Mother and Jay. What a fraud. Look at the family. Look at ours. It's a crime to have children. We're hopeless people. We can't cope with the world. We're too gentle. Mm -hmm. And I think that Chambers was very disturbed by his brother's kind of elaborate depression, but also philosophical justification for killing himself, which he was really committed to. And he sort of was compelled by it in a way that was really scary to him, right? He felt, yes. yeah, I am too gentle. I, I can't cope with the world. I'm like you. And yeah. I think that what you're getting at, that his conversion to a faith in the form of communism, which was all about building up a kind of discipline and a strength and a certainty about there being a meaning in the world, which, which one could commit themselves to, and then day by day work toward, was partially a defense against giving in to the despair that his brother felt. Yes. And I think maybe even more, if this is what the world does to gentle people, we must change the world. Yes. He literally says that. Because the key text is Lenin's Soviets at Work for him, which he read in 1924. Right. right? It's not like he read Marx and became convinced of dialectical materialism or something like that, though that might have been a part of it. It was the kind of very brute, very direct... I mean, this might be somewhat retrospective, but I I think it's in that letter to my children at the start of Witness where he says, why do men become communists? And he boils it down to philosophers heretofore have sought to understand the world, but the goal is to change it. That changing the world was, I think, the, the key of his communist faith. If this is what the world does to people then we have to change the world. That's exactly what he says in in a line in Witness. He says, I felt that any society that could result in the death of a boy like my brother was wrong and I was at war with it. This was the beginning of my fanaticism. Yes, indeed. Now, this is when I mentioned what a pleasure Tannen House's biography is. I think this kind of phase, before he goes underground, becomes kind of a communist spy, basically from 1925 until 1932, that period of time, he's really right in the heart of left-wing literary circles. For a couple years in the late 20s, 27 to 29, he was actually a writer and editor at the Daily Worker. But all along this time, from 1925 on, he was writing poetry for the New Masses, the important communist publication. And Sam, this to me was totally new material that Tannenhaus 
taught me, which was that there was a period of time where he was considered the hottest literary Bolshevik in New York City. Or maybe in the world. Maybe in the world, because especially there was a series of short stories he wrote in 1931 for the new masses, the most important of which was called Can You Make Out Their Voices? That was published in March 1931, and it was basically about what sharecroppers in Arkansas. And a good-hearted communist who came to help them. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it was kind of letters flooded in, and people like Lincoln Steffens wrote to him, kind of praising his talent. And, And it was notable, it was the rare example of kind of real artistry existing alongside a real communist message. Normally, yeah. the communist message destroyed the artistry in these projects, right? Social realism, yeah. But it was a great short story, qua short story, but had the party line down really well, too. <laughs> and especially, you know, this is 31, right? So we're, we're into the Great Depression. Yeah. And so it kind of met the moment, too, in that sense. Yeah, it is very interesting. There's a lot going on under the hood of American communism at this time, the sort of jostling between competing camps that are also kind of trying to anticipate whether Stalin is going to totally consolidate power, or if maybe Bukharin is going to consolidate power. And so everybody's kind of on edge about who, who you're associated with within the party and different factions that are placing their bets on the future of the Soviet leadership Uh and stuff. And through this, I mean, as is very meticulously and almost too well documented in Witness, he's describing that he's trying to maneuver these conflicts, but that by writing these stories that are just really good stories and good propaganda, he finds a place for himself in the movement. And especially, Sam, what you were talking about, having to kind of have your finger in the wind (laughs) in terms of the factional disputes. Sounds terrible. It really does. And uh, especially that period where he was at the Daily Worker, 1927 to 29, he would describe coming in like there's a new person at the desk beside him. (laughs) The person he thought was his editor is no longer his editor. And, And you kind of see some of the inklings, you know, of things that would later kind of bother him enough that he would break. So after these string of successes, especially Can You Make Out Their Voices, these short stories in the New Masses, he was named editor of the New Masses. But it didn't last long. He was only in that position for a couple of months before he was paid a visit. (laughs) We have an assignment. If you choose to accept it. Yes. And if you don't, well, who knows what would happen. So this is late 1931, 1932. This is when he goes underground, so to speak, and engages in espionage for the GRU, which is the abbreviation for the Foreign Military Intelligence Agency of the Soviet Army. Right. Yeah. Essentially as a go-between between people in Washington, D.C., who had access to government documents, files, people in the government, and then kind of his overseers. I think it's very funny. It might have already occurred to the listeners. It's like, why would this kind of like chubby bilingual literary star be asked to be the leader of some kind of underground communist conspiracy. Like, is there nobody else who can be given (laughs) this job? He's like really awkward. He's very shy. He has kind of like a lot of anxiety. He's, he clearly like lives his life with a great cloud of like impending despair around him. Like, is this the person that you think is like the ideal candidate for agent of the communist underground? I think it does sort of speak to the haphazard way in which 
this kind of work was being done, even in the the sort of heyday of the CPUSA in the in the 1930s, that Whitaker <laughs> Chambers should be seen <laughs> as such a great candidate <laughs> for uh, communist conspiracy work. It'd be like us being spies or something. I think we'd be better than he was. <laughs> I think he's kind of very ill-suited to it, uh, except for the fact that he's sort of like... Well, he's a true believer. He's a true believer, and he feels this sort of soldierly discipline is what he needs in order to hold his life together, as yes. he will later feel about being a Quaker and a Christian. Yes, he, he has this consistent impulse toward a kind of monastic very disciplined life. If it's painful and if he suffers, then it's real, then it matters. Yes. And I and I think in a way his kind of at least superficial ill suitedness to it meant he was extraordinarily cautious. Maybe the better word is afraid. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. we'll we'll get there. But it, Stalin's great purge was in nineteen thirty six. But if you're in the party, you start hearing all kinds of crazy shit. Yes. He knew even before then he he had handlers disappear, so to speak. You know, people he knew would kind of fall out of favor. So he was very circumspect. And I think one kind of interesting aspect of his work in the underground is that later when he breaks and talks to the House on american Activities Committee, tells people what he knew, he actually did his work so well in some ways that it's, it was hard to prove some of his allegations. Yeah. <laughs> Just the number of layers... To give an example of the kind of work he would do, it's like someone like Alger Hiss, let's say, would take a document home with them at night, sometimes write a copy out in their own hand, but other times give it to Chambers, who would then find a photographer, right, to take photographs of these documents. And then those photographs would be handed off to the person above him, his handler, so to speak. And then the original document given back to the person who gave it to him and put back in its proper place, essentially. He, he was that kind of middle figure. And so yeah. he was dealing with both sources in the government, on the ground in D.C., and people above him in the party and in the intelligence apparatus of the party. So he was always going between New York and D.C. He was yeah. kind of traveling a lot. And it was some of those aspects of his job that kind of came to bear on the Hiss case because it was like Hiss gave him a car, <laughs> right? Those kinds of jobs were what he did. Yeah, I think the fact that he was often a sort of courier, he was establishing links between different groups and his own handlers was one of the reasons that he did have more comprehensive sight onto the apparatus yes. that he was engaged with. Whereas like Hiss, for example, wouldn't know nearly as much because he was just going to work and coming back and telling people what he knew, trying to recruit other peoples and every so often giving documents to Whitaker Chambers. But yeah, I think before we sort of describe his break with the party, it's worth saying that in his account and in the account of his wife, Esther, his wife, a Jew, by the way, <laughs> well, it does matter, you know, because it's kind of like he meets her through left wing movement circles. And I think it matters later on when there's a sort of anti-Semitic character to the anti-communist movement and the yes. McCarthyite movement. And also, frankly, not to get ahead of ourselves, but a point of differentiation, Alger Hiss and his wife Priscilla versus the schlubby chambers and his Jewish wife. And as yep. Mary Kempton points out, Chambers' wife would not have been allowed really in the neighborhood that Hiss grew up in in Baltimore. Exactly. Not to get ahead of ourselves. So I would say one of the things we get in this period is the account of how close Chambers and Hiss were. Chambers will always insist 
that Hiss was maybe the best friend he made in the communist movement. I don't hate Mr. Hiss. We were close friends, but we are caught in the tragedy of history. I've testified against him with remorse and pity. Their family spent all of this time together. Priscilla Hiss took care of his children at various times. Esther and Priscilla had their own sort of relationship. He and Hiss... They were raising kids. They were raising kids together. They were sharing apartments. They were sharing homes. So when it comes to the moment where Hiss says, no, I don't know this man. I've never met him before. The man who now calls himself Whitaker Chambers. Is he a man of consistent reliability, truthfulness, and honor? Clearly not. He admits it and the committee knows it. Indeed, is he a man of sanity? Getting the facts about Whitaker Chambers, if that is his name, will not be easy. His operations have been furtive and concealed. Why? What does he have to hide? The fact that the level of, of entanglement of these two families, their fortunes and their aspirations and political beliefs was so complete, that does bear on just how troubling and and despairing and devastating devastating yes devastating it is that this man denies everything when 1948 rolls around so that's all to say that that's in the works i would sort yes. of just say to summarize what causes chambers to leave the party there's a couple of things right like it's one of these crazy things about being a communist especially if you're in the communist underground where you're actually interacting with like soviets like people who are agents of the soviet government from Russia, you will know that like one day some figure who is in Soviet Union is the greatest hero of all time of the revolution, you know, represents the ideal proletarian soldier who had participated valiantly in the revolutionary struggle. Everyone treats them as a saint, as a secular saint. And then the next day, because Stalin decides to kill them, you have to say, no, that I hate that person. That person was really bad. They don't exist for me at all. And Chambers was going through that over and over again. You know, He was so romantically attached to the revolutionary generation. And one of the things that happened during the purges is that Stalin killed most of the revolutionary generation because they were threats to his power. One of the things that really impressed itself upon me reading Tannenhaus's book is, frankly, the self-defeating character of the purges. You know, like yeah. competent, committed people being disappeared, either killed, sent to camps, whatever. And frankly, Chambers had an inkling of that long before he broke with the party, but he still thought that the only hope for the world was communism. So there was a period of time where he was kind of willing to, I don't want to say look the other way, but kind of bracket some of what Stalin was doing, some of the purges. And the question of how far someone can take the kind of, well, the revolution must know best, or like Stalin's not the ideal person, but he's the leader of the movement that's going to save humanity. Like how far you can take the cognitive dissonance is the question of how long it takes you to leave the party. I mean, there's a concept called the Kronstadt moment for communists, which is basically when was the moment that you realized, oh no, this thing I believed in is false or that it had been betrayed by the people who are its enactors at that moment. So the Kronstadt Rebellion was undertaken by these sailors who had played a crucial role in the revolution of 1917, who in 1921, as the Russian Civil War was coming to an end, revolted against the Bolshevik regime 
demanding various reforms. And they themselves, despite having been seen as heroes up to that moment, were brutally crushed by the Soviet government. And so for some people, the Kronstadt moment was the Kronstadt rebellion. But for some people, the Kronstadt moment was the purge, the purge of a particular person or the show trial of a particular person. For some people, I think importantly for Chambers, it was the Hitler-Stalin Pact, which of course was violated by Hitler when he invaded the Soviet Union. But for some people, it was later. So for some people, it was 1956, you know, Hungarian uprising, you know. And this question of how long in the sort of memoirs, historical accounts, the essays in The God That Failed, the sort of essays about ex-communists coming to abandon the party, like this question of when's your constant moment? When is it too much? When does some kind of kernel of something you believed before or that your your revolutionary faith taught you to believe is violated by the things that the people who are representing it are doing? When does that happen? And I think for certain Americans, the Soviet crimes in Spain during the Spanish Civil War yes. were very important too. They were for chambers. And in fact, in the chronology here, so he goes underground in 1932, breaks in 37, 38. I think the timing, when you precisely you want to date that, it's not the most important question. But there's a period in 1938, 1939, when chambers has decided to break. And he actually goes down to Washington to try to convince some of the people in the circles who he, he was kind of overseeing, the, the people he was the, the mediator for, to try to convince them to break with him. And of course, one of those was the hisses. And yeah. uh, there's a great line, I just have to include it here. Chambers goes down to DC and he, he really is hoping to get them to break with him from the movement. And uh, he visits Alger and Priscilla Hiss and the kind of argument Chambers makes, a lot of it is about the Soviet crimes in Spain. And, right. and this is uh, how Tannenhaus describes it. He goes, his hosts were not impressed. Chambers' concerns, said Mrs. Hiss, were mental masturbation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, I just want to add, I believe, I could be wrong, but one of those places that Hiss lived in, in D.C., I visited once uh, as a young conservative. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a strange thing to admit, but there was an article in National Review Online that kind of was like conservative pilgrimage sites <laughs> in, in D.C. And at the time, I was a graduate student at Georgetown. I remember just saying, oh, I should go check that out. And I stood in front of the house and said, oh, so this is where it happened. And that, that was the extent of the story. For our non-conservative listeners, like the, the, the Hiss Chambers trial has these like a walking tour. You can do Washington, <laughs> yeah. D.C. and visit all the places that come up in the transcripts. Maybe we should offer that to Know Your Enemy listeners. Uh, That'd be great. Uh, a guided tour of Washington, D.C. We'll go to Volta Place. and uh... This is the car dealership where he sold the Ford Roadster. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that this is important to the story about Chambers, that uh, he does try to convince people who were his allies in the movement, especially those that he actually liked. Because there's a lot of people he yeah. writes about who are like, I did not like that person. I remember there's a great line in Witness where he meets somebody who's a new handler or new somebody he has to deal with. He says something like, I realized after I met him that he was something much more uncommon than an entirely good man, an entirely <laughs> evil man. <laughs> but that's not, of course, how he felt about Alger Hiss and his wife. Those were some of the people that he most wanted to sort of convince, like, this is wrong, we got to do something else. And mm -hmm. there's an encounter between him and Hiss at the end of this effort to get him to leave with him, which becomes very important in the trial because Chambers is leaving. They've gotten to an impasse and Hiss cries. 
it becomes like so important in the trial because his says, I don't know this man. I certainly never cried when he left me on my doorstep or whatever. And there's a passage from Witness where Chambers describes this encounter, which I think is great. He writes, quote, as we hesitated, tears came into Alger Hiss's eyes. The only time I ever saw him so moved. He has denied this publicly and derisively. He does himself an injustice. By the tone, rather than the denial, which has its practical purpose in the pattern of his whole denial, what he should not regret are those few tears, for as long as men are human and remember our story, they will plead for his humanity. <laughs> you know, I mean, we'll get to the trial soon, and we'll play the audio of the two of them talking. Chambers loved his, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's no question about it, when he knew him at the time. And it pained him. Mm-hmm. that he refused to acknowledge that, that they had shared something, yeah. that they had ever known each other. Um, he writes in the next section, it's not good to lose good friends for less than human reasons. Hmm. Well, there's a chapter in Tannenhaus's biography or a section called Defector, 1938-1939. And it's during this period where, as we've been describing, Chambers both starts his break with the party and tries to convince his friends in the movement, like Alger and Priscilla Hiss, to join him. They don't do it, but he does make the break. And by 1939, he's basically broken with the party And he was very worried he'd be killed, rightfully so. So this is a period of great suspicion. He leans on his friends during this time. But one of the things I want to say is that he viewed his own kind of safety, the key to it, as establishing a real public presence, a routine. So people who would see him in the mornings at work or on the commute home, right? Routines, a public life, a real public life after years of being in the underground when essentially he had no public life. He was being paid by the Soviet Union to do this work. He didn't have a job. <laughs> right. He didn't pay income taxes. He was essentially off the books as a public person. He was a non-public person. It's easier to kill a non-public person than a person who has a real name and a government identity. Right. I think it's worth saying in 1939, after he failed to convince very many or any, as far as we know, of his former comrades to join him in leaving the party, he did end up telling a high level State Department official. Burl, right? Yeah, Burl, who was very close to FDR, had a private meeting with him about the sort of espionage ring and named a bunch of people, including Alger Hiss. Just to be clear that like, it wasn't that he was brought before the HUAC in 1948 and had never talked to anybody. He did at the time. And um, it was right before the U.S. involvement in World War II. And so it didn't go anywhere. But it's just, just uh, I think that has to be in the, in the mix. This gets to something, I mean, maybe some of his own sense of his own importance was he wanted an audience with the president of the United States. I mean, it's always hard to tell with Chambers. Obviously, his own account of his motivations is usually... While it's mixed with his kind of like self-loathing and like burdensome kind of suffering and stuff, it's also like how much are you trying to protect yourself and how much are you trying to, you know, do the right thing? I think that in the moment where he goes to Burl, he's really tormented by it because he doesn't really want to destroy his friends. But at that point, he has been convinced, and I think this is actually quite understandable, that if Hitler and Stalin are in a pact, 
then any information that he's passed to his State Department communist friends might go to Hitler. And he's certainly been disillusioned by the Communist Party, but he was very certain that Hitler and fascism was a great danger. And so he did not want that to happen. And so you can understand his motivation. I think that he expected a lot more <laughs> from saying, hey, you're about to go to war. Here are a bunch of people who work in the foreign side of our federal government who are communists, as far as I know, who are, are at this moment allied with someone that is a pseudo and about to be total enemy of the American government. And the fact that nothing happened contributed a great deal to Chambers's sense of there being a conspiracy to protect the communists in U.S. government that goes very high, and his growing suspicion of FDR and the New Deal and the whole apparatus of, of American liberalism. Yes. And Adolf Burrow, who we mentioned, he was uh, an assistant secretary of state. Of course, there was the State Department in which Alger Hiss worked. Burrow later said, like, well, I took it seriously, but I didn't think, like, Alger Hiss and his brother were going to take over the U.S. government. You know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's really hard from the standpoint, even of the late 40s when the Hiss case comes out, and certainly from the standpoint of now, to understand that like the idea that there might be a communist in government in the 1930s, especially if you were a liberal, was not the most startling or scandalizing thing. But it's more like because Chambers knew what the party really was from the inside and what they were actually doing, that he was more alarmed than people that he was trying to convince. Yes. And I think it's important to say, too, that Partly what was going on here was these were not people, someone like Alger Hiss, he wasn't like a member of the Communist Party on paper necessarily, right? As no, an open yeah. thing. Phase one was for communists to simply have positions of influence in the government. And then the espionage kind of would come out of that. And so some of the ambiguities that when we get to the Hiss trial, he kind of plays off of make sense in light of that. But one of the things to kind of just bring this into the broader Know Your Enemy cinematic universe is, of course, Whitaker Chambers is a character in Lionel Trilling's novel, The Middle of the Journey. Mm. His name is Gifford Maxim in that novel. But that novel begins with the character, kind of the Trilling stand-in, on a train with Chambers. And this is when he's kind of made the break, but he's still very wary. He doesn't really, he's not quite settled yet. He doesn't have that public persona yet. And Chambers insists on sitting in the very back car of the train on the very last seat. <laughs> mm -hmm. So no one could be behind them. And Chambers, one of his kind of safety measures was when he was on the subway or on a train, he would wait till every single other person was off that car to get off himself. Because if someone was waiting for you to get off, you knew they had it in for you, right? Right, right. <laughs> so listeners, check out The Middle of the Journey. I actually quite like the novel quite a bit. Trilling actually describes writing the novel, and, and he wanted it to be a novella, something shorter. And the Chambers figure kind of came to him unbidden, kind of demanding to be put into the novel. <laughs> and, and almost improbably, there's a, a young couple, a married couple in the novel that blows my mind. They're not based on the hisses. But they're not. But Trilling insists that they're not. Yes. Maybe he just didn't want the publicity. Well, I mean, this was in the 70s, though, near the end of his life, when he says, I swear to God, that they were yeah. not the hisses. But where we want to go with this is, of all the places Chambers could have landed, 
to me, one is tempted to cite the cunning of history, actually, that it was at Time magazine, <laughs> uh, you know, with Mr. Cold Warrior himself in some ways, Henry Luce, Harry Luce, the kind of entrepreneur, businessman, publishing magnate who published yeah. Time magazine, Life magazine, Sports Illustrated, Fortune, among others. And Chambers was hired at Time and kind of quickly rose through the ranks, in part because he actually knew something about communism. He could write well, and he just kind of very quickly endeared himself to maybe not all of his colleagues, but yeah. to Harry Luce especially. And time was interesting because during that period, it was unsigned articles. It's like The Economist is now. Yes, no bylines. And, and Chambers would write something, and then like at the next big editorial meeting, Harry Luce would say, who wrote that piece? And oh, yeah. it would be Chambers, right? And there's a lot we could say about Chambers' basically decade at time. As I mentioned, he kind of rose through the ranks, and by the time he testified for the House Un-Americans Activity Committee, he was making like $30,000 a year. He was a senior editor. And there's just one more story for the Know Your Enemy universe. And I won't tell it myself. We're going to turn it over to the great Christopher Hitchens to tell this story, where a young Saul Bellow <laughs> interviewed for a job as a book reviewer at Time and uh, had the position quashed by Whitaker Chambers. I <laughs> <laughs> thought, I've got a job. They're paying me to review books. He arrived at Time magazine on his first day at work. Have you had your interview with Whitaker Chambers yet? I said, didn't know we needed a meeting with Mr. Chambers. Yes, you do. It'll take place at three o'clock this afternoon. Went into the office. Toad-like figure of Chambers sitting behind the desk. Mr. Bellow, take a seat. Tell me what was your course of study at the university. Bellow said, I studied English literature. Chambers said, very good. The queen of subjects. Give me your view, if you would, Mr. Bellow, of William Wordsworth as a poet. Bellow said, I... Uh, don't dissent from the prevailing view he was a romantic poet. Chambers said, there is no place for you in this organization. You must be out of the office by close of business this afternoon. And he told us this story brilliantly, and we were sitting there, and he said he'd had, and I realized I had simultaneously had the same two thoughts. He wondered, what if he'd kept the job? He might have been remembered as the book critic for Time magazine. A horrifying thought. And then the second question also had occurred to me, what should I have said? I said, well, you should have said William Wordsworth was a former revolutionary Republican poet who saw the error of his ways and became a conservative and a monarchist. That would have kept you the job. <laughs> I just had to include the, the Bellow Chambers encounter, which is one of those kind of crisscrosses of history, right, where you almost can't believe it. It's so funny, right, because, of course, the whole question for someone like Chambers is like, what do you do when something that you believed in when you were young, in the case of Wordsworth, the French Revolution, goes wrong? And, you know, in the case of the French Revolution, that it, Napoleon became a dictator. And whether you remember Wordsworth for, for example, the feelings that he remembered when he wrote the French Revolution as it appeared to enthusiasts at its commencement, you know, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, <laughs> but to be young was very heaven. Or if you remember Wordsworth turning against it because he was so betrayed by Napoleon. And so for Chambers, it's exactly the same thing. Should we remember him for his enthusiasm for the communist revolution? Or should we remember him for recognizing Stalin as the dictator who undermined the very heaven that was promised by 1917? So as I said, Chambers, he was making a great salary. He 
had bought this farm outside of Westminster, Maryland. He thought he was safer there, you know, so he would often commute to New York. But he basically blows all that up. Yeah. In 1948, when he is called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And the reason he blows it up is not because necessarily he told on Alger Hiss, but because to do so, he had to admit his own past, which at least the full dimensions of were not known by Mr. Anti-Communist Harry Luce and his kind of button-down colleagues at time. And of course, Chambers, you know, his position at time, much of it was dependent on Luce's good graces because he'd climbed the ranks so fast and he'd kind of, you know, throwed his weight around. Well, he'd thrown his weight around in being a much, much more suspicious of the Soviet Union than the kind of many of his liberal colleagues wanted to be. They were our allies, you know, yeah. and this is during World War II, right? And even after World War II then, the full kind of Cold War mentality had not yet set in. And, and of course, time had this massive apparatus all around the world. So there were stringers, you know, reporters on the ground who would send in these reports to time and Chambers would basically read them. <laughs> Re- rewrite them. Yeah. You know, use a couple of the details, a couple of the factoids, you know, but basically totally change them. Yeah. So he wasn't the most beloved colleague. But this is really now for listeners to the podcast who are interested in the right This is when we really get to the meat of the story in some ways. Chambers, as the witness against Alger Hiss, first for the House Un-American Activities Committee, and then during the Hiss perjury trials. If listeners are super interested in the Hiss trial, read Sam Tanhouse's book. Read Witness, even, if you want even more detail. The whole sort of story of the sequence of events from him testifying for HUAC, naming Hiss, then Hiss sues Chambers for libel, and there's that trial. And then once Chambers makes known to the lawyers involved in that trial that he had these documents that Hiss had given to him, that results in there being a perjury trial against Hiss, which then is, is for, there's first a mistrial, and then there's a second trial where the government prevails and convicts Hiss. All of the details of that are too much to get into in the podcast. Truly. Right? This isn't a cop-out. I mean, even in Tannenhaus's biography, I would say the lion's share of it deals with Chambers's testimony to the House Committee and the subsequent trials then. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge, huge chunk of the text, and it involves so many ins and outs. If you think about what the stakes of it are, is that Chambers is saying, this guy, who until 1947 worked for the State Department, is a communist. I knew him very, very well. He was very close with me and my family. I loved him. He was my best friend in the communist movement. And then this sphinx-like ideal product of liberal meritocracy, smilingly and compellingly and graciously saying, no, I was not. This man is lying. It, 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 how could one not be compelled by this story, you know, including because, as we've sort of alluded to, this contrast between these two figures, right? Chambers at this point, he's overweight. He loves eating as much as he loves talking. He smokes cigarettes for a long, long time. Then he gives it up to smoke a pipe just as much. He's unhealthy. And he's sort of just con- everyone who sees him. I mean, this is in the Trilling description of him, too. You just see the weight of his own sort of sense of 
burden of morality, the burden of his own self-loathing. It just weighs upon his countenance, <laughs> the way he speaks, the way he presents himself. And, and, and his couldn't be more different. He is the kind of spry, handsome, handsome, tall, skinny. Harvard Law School. I mean, this is where maybe, Sam, we should take a step back, okay? So what are the forces arrayed here? Who is on Chambers' side? The schlubby Chambers without a college degree. Who has admitted to being, for 10 years, a communist conspirator, uh, espionage agent of a foreign power. Yes, and who has alienated all his powerful friends, like Harry Luce, at least to some degree, by not just saying he used to be a communist, which they basically knew, but that he was actively engaged in espionage against the United States. And sabotage. Right. So on one side, you have Chambers, who's shredded his whole reputation, such as it was. And who basically believes him? A young Richard Nixon, (laughs) who was on the House Un-American Activities Committee, against Alger Hiss, the product of John Hopkins University and Harvard Law School, who was a darling of the liberal establishment. The people who would say a good word about Alger Hiss were people like Eleanor Roosevelt, Right. Felix Frankfurter, two sitting Supreme Court justices, are character witnesses on his behalf at his trial. That's unprecedented. So this is why, if you want to take a step back, if you're a little kind of muddled in where we're at and what's going on, this is really where the great divide occurs. You can start to see how not just materially, but kind of symbolically, the chambers versus hiss, the accusations and then the trials became such a signal event in the history of the fledgling right because it was everything the right hated. The liberal right. do-gooder establishment, the Eleanor Roosevelt's, the Harvard law grads, the Supreme yeah. Court justices against the schlubby ex-communist. I mean, this is the way Chambers would portray it. This is the way the right would portray it. It was the best and brightest uh, enlightened liberals against this conservative who kind of spoke for the real Americans who hated communism. Yeah. It basically can't be underscored enough. Like, we've glossed over the, like, details of the case, and they're fun and interesting if you want to know about them, but but the actual sort of symbolic importance of it in the history of American liberalism and American conservatism is this. His is the avatar of the post-war liberal establishment. He's young, handsome, brilliant, a new dealer, turned diplomat. He's the embodiment of the meritocratic dream that has become the kind of liberal catechism. It's like he's a career man. After the State Department, he runs the Carnegie Endowment. Yeah, yeah, right, right, like, right. like the, the Ur establishment kind of job. And Chambers is the fly in the ointment of this whole vision of what a yes. good government man is and does. Chambers is an anachronism, not only in the sense that he was a communist, but he's an anguished Christian witness. And he's a farmer. <laughs> like his, We haven't mentioned this, but he's dedicated himself at this point to running this family farm. He's got his sharecropper. <laughs> he's got his children and his wife working and milking the cows. He's uncharming. He is variously diffident and abrasive. He's prone to this kind of dark moods. He's self-loathing. He's shy. He speaks in a very quiet voice. He kind of looks at the ceiling and just yeah. kind of the, the visuals, because this was also the House on American Activities Committee hearings were the, some of the first televised hearings in the United States. It's funny. I believe it's Tannenhaus points out at the time there were like 
300,000 television sets in the United States. Yeah, it's not really a televised event. Yes, it's, it's so don't think of it in those terms. But for the just the visuals, the short, stubby chambers who's kind of mumbling, looking at the ceiling, versus Hiss with his pearly smile, his linen suits, his well-combed hair. It's one of those occasions where the visuals seem to match the substantive contest in an incredible way. And even if you didn't have a TV, it's being covered by every single newspaper doubly. <laughs> you know, So you, you get the depictions of them in really precise prose. And so everyone knows that this is the encounter and they'll see the pictures of them in the paper. And then if they have a TV, they can see it. You know, Hiss is the sort of, he's the sort of man, he comes off this way, who would be comfortable anywhere. Everywhere he goes, he fits in. Actually, in Witness, Chambers reports that he made a lot of friends in prison. He made as many friends in prison as he made in the communist underground and in the State Department. Right. He gave like free law advice, was like yes. a model citizen in prison, so to speak. People cheered for him when he was getting out after only 40 <laughs> yeah. months. Chambers, by contrast, is the sort of man who is not comfortable anywhere. <laughs> he's, right. he's, he is assailed by his discomfort in his own body and in his own mind. He aches because, of course, he's constantly doing this farm work, which he's never in condition to do. But his soul aches at all times. Like He, he is not a man who you sit down in front of him and you, you feel at ease. You feel discomfort because he feels discomfort. And Hiss couldn't be more the opposite. Hiss got in front of those microphones at the hearings and just convincingly lied or you know believe lied and you can find clips of hiss in the 70s being interviewed on like british television keeping up the lie just saying he didn't know chambers he never spied he was never a communist yeah it really was the george costanza it's not a lie if you believe it yeah it's actually incredible to me that he kept it up without cracking Right. Until he, he died at the age of 92, histed, in 1996. He never admitted any of it. With huge numbers of people in the liberal establishment, which we'll get to shortly, still believing that he was innocent. I want to read something from Witness, which points to exactly what you've been identifying about the sort of nature of this case. The way in which Chambers sort of... Even in 1952, when Witness came out, had already sort of established this template that becomes so important for the encounter between the nascent conservative movement and liberalism. This is what Chambers writes. No feature of the Hiss case is more obvious and more troubling as history than the jagged fissure, which it did not so much open as reveal, between the plain men and women of the nation and those who affected to act, think, and speak for them. It was, not invariably, but in general, the best people who were for Alger Hiss and who were prepared to go to any length for them. It was the enlightened and the powerful, the clamorous proponents of the open mind and the common man who snapped their minds shut in a pro-his psychosis of a kind which in an individual patient means the simple failure of the ability to distinguish between reality and unreality and in a nation is a warning of the end <laughs> i mean that's his that's that's chambers's estimation and i think it's justifiable in the kind of historical memory of the moment that the liberal establishment, which is the establishment of that moment, the Democrats are in power, the New Deal is still the order of the day, these people will not accept that Hiss is guilty, even when the evidence becomes overwhelming. And I just have to say, as a young conservative, this is something I find kind of fascinating. 
you know, we kind of said near the start of the episode that this episode, the, the Chambers Hiss trial, it's faded in some ways, at least with our generation, I think it's fair to say. But for me as a young conservative, it was like if someone would refuse to admit Hiss was a communist, that was something like there were conservative mentors I had who had a mental Rolodex of every fucking person in the country who who would still not admit Hiss was a communist. Like that right. was such a it was kind of everything they they wanted to believe about liberals concentrated in one episode and kind of one right. man and people's posture towards that episode and man. It wasn't like an error in judgment. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't kind of naivety gone wrong. It was proof of the inner rot of the liberal establishment and that they were dupes and that they would have sold us down the river to the commies if they had had their druthers. Right, right. I think it's worth saying here, as we alluded to earlier, Murray Kempton does identify the ways in which these two men, they did share some things about their backgrounds and that maybe their two reactions to this encounter, their temperaments in this moment might have something to do with the same shared experience. Hiss's father who was a grocer, committed suicide when Hiss was a child. He slit his own throat. This is in, in Tannenhaus's biography. So there's suicide shared there. His, Hiss's brother died of drink, kidney disease from drinking poison, prohibition, or alcohol. And his older sister killed herself too by swallowing household cleanser. This feeling coming from a family which is trying to depict itself as upstanding and genteel while having a sort of just a profound darkness pervading their actual relations with each other is shared. And they both had these powerful mothers who wanted more for their sons, for their promising, brilliant sons, than was guaranteed. And I think Kempton's insight about Hiss's, you know, I mean, what can we call it? Uh, discipline? Hiss's refusal to admit defeat? Kempton sees it as kind of representative of that shabby genteel clinging to reputation that what you have to do is maintain you know yes. <laughs> you can't give an inch never let the cracks show never let the cracks show and if anything about this encounter can be reduced to kind of family history family romance chambers's brokenness is what causes him to act in the way that he does in this kind of self-sacrificing, puritanical, almost Calvinist self-punishment, abnegation. And Hiss's childhood, which is similar, is what causes him to cling to respectability and rely on the Janus-faced certainty that people will accept the gentility and not the shabbiness. Yes, that's so well put, Sam. And I think one thing Kempton gets at, too, is that with Hiss, he kind of made it look easy, but that masked how hard he was striving, really. Yeah. And every once in a while, a kind of waspish anger or bitterness or meanness would slip out. You know, yeah. Chambers couldn't keep it under wraps in the same way. Chambers was just, as you put it well, he was just too broken of a man in a way. I don't want to be too credulous towards Chambers by saying he was too honest or something, but he just couldn't fake it. No, you know? no, no. But, but Hiss could kind of keep it under wraps in a certain way. You just had these brief lapses with him, sometimes even during the trials. Yeah. A brief slip, like um, during the first 
trial when it was a hung jury, but he kind of knew he was cooked because it was eight to four against him, right? Yeah. Tannenhaus describes, you know, a brief moment where Hiss's face goes white. Yeah. But then he kind of puts himself back together, composes yeah. himself, and is smiling and smoking a cigarette again on his way out of the courtroom. And I think that really gets to the, the kind of personalities involved here. Yeah. Well, you know, Sam, let's just take a step back here and revisit the timeline here for listeners. So it's 48, 1948, when Chambers is called for HUAC. 1949 is the first his trial. 1950 is the second his trial in which he was found guilty. And I think at this point in the conversation, it's worth talking about the role of this episode in terms of the Red Scare, anti-communism and kind of the onset of the Cold War in the United States. There's a real sense in which the Hiss trial, and especially him being found guilty, I think it kind of gave new life to anti-communism, or it put it into a new phase. I think you're totally right. I think the success, the ultimate success, the the fact that Chambers prevails, Nixon prevails, (laughs) is so important to... The beginning of what we now know as the Second Red Scare, which we associate with Joseph McCarthy. But in fact, HUAC had existed since the earlier part of the 1940s. And, you know, first they pursued Hollywood, right? So there was the Hollywood 10 and sort of like all of these screenwriters who were known communists. And When's that? 47? 47 is when they are in front of HUAC, I think. And they are there and they all refuse to name names and they refuse to participate in the witch hunt. You know the red hunting as they as they saw it, and they they are blacklisted by Hollywood. But the fact that you know they didn't find any new witches <laughs> is kind of like Huac is losing its uh, reputation. It's sort of it's sort of seen as this yeah. like m- this vehicle for the reactionary impulses of conservatives in both yes. parties. And you know, like a lot of people, certainly in the media and liberal establishment, the establishment in general are sympathetic towards you know these these screenwriters and uh, people in Hollywood who. You know, just believed in a cause, and 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 the, and this is all this is all in the past too. That's the other thing. I think people forget. Like the second Red Scare happens, and like the Communist Party in the United States is in disarray. Its height was really many years before. When were loyalty oaths implemented? There was a sort of de facto loyalty program in a lot of different departments of the federal government for a long time, but it was in 1947 that Truman was sort of forced by the kind of rising anti-communist impulses of the Republican Party to establish much more stringent loyalty investigations for people who are in the government. You know, it's the irony that I'm sort of getting to is that like the, the actual prominence of actual committed communists in the government by 1947 was much less of a real fact and problem from the standpoint of anti-communism than it had been in certainly in the late 1930s. Um, you know, I mean, the, the the way that the whole kind of federal government infiltration that Hiss and Chambers were a part of in the 1930s had been accomplished is because it was very easy. There was enough communists in New Deal, <laughs> New Deal agencies to place anybody anywhere <laughs> for a while. You know, that was a real thing. And it was also because they, we weren't at war with the Soviet Union. And in fact, they were soon to be our allies. But it, in 1947, with the establishment of this much more stringent loyalty program, there was attacks on former communists, non-communist leftists who had made a career for themselves in the New Deal establishment, the New Deal world. 
and try to actually do good things. I mean, from the, we're leftists. From the standpoint of making America a more egalitarian, a more feminist, a more anti-racist country, there were a lot of people who are committed to those projects, who are in positions of relative influence in the government, who were caught up in the Red Scare that started to take steam in the late 1940s, and which, in some ways, as you were pointing to earlier, Chambers saved from insignificance, right? Because there really weren't that many communists left to point to, but he knew one. Uh, yes, exactly. In other words, it, was, it really was getting to the point where Huak was starting to grasp at straws, yeah. right? And there were calls to shut it down. And even before Chambers... We can't get into this. We just can't. We simply can't. But, you know, the pumpkin patch, <laughs> right? Can I just tell them really quickly? Yes. Chambers do. hid the microfilm and, and, and camera negatives of all the papers that Hiss and other people in the group of federal employees who were giving him documents had provided. He hid them in a pumpkin that he hollowed out and put in a pumpkin patch on his property, which then became, just think about how the media would respond to this like crazy yes. ex-communist with a pumpkin full of documents. Yeah. Can you imagine that in the media landscape of today? Right? Uh, and the thing was, even back then, it was such a huge deal. But the reason I reference it is because until that physical evidence, Chambers came forth with it. Basically, it was his word against hisses. I mean, yeah. there were some... Yeah possible other witnesses, but they were all like some other ex-communist or, right, you right, know, right. it really was kind of one man's word against another in some ways. There was a moment that Tannenhaus records where Nixon, who's gone all in on Chambers' side, realizes that without that evidence, he says, I'm finished. He really thinks yeah. he's done. He's made a big mistake because Chambers, it's worth saying, this kind of gets to his relationship with his. He wanted to kind of keep the espionage part out of it as long as yes. he could. Because yes, yes. there's a difference between Chambers saying, I knew Hiss is a communist, and him saying, I have physical proof that he was engaged in espionage against the United States, right? Yeah. And so Chambers was trying to actually let Hiss off easy, at least in his account, you know, yeah. or, or give him room to kind of confess to the lesser crime or something like that. It's hard to know, right, whether he was protecting himself. Right, yes. That was part of it. He just realized it was going to get much messier. But I, I believe him that, you know, Chambers will say in witness that he had the chance to make amends and build up a, a life again after leaving the party. And he did want that to be an option for people who he informed upon. And he didn't think it would be possible for that to be an option for his if he showed that he had given State Department documents to the Soviet government. So Chambers really held on to that for about as long as he possibly could. But in that interval where Nixon had gone all in and Chambers had not produced that evidence, Nixon thought he might be ruined. Yeah. That's just to say, again, the House on american Activity Committee, Nixon's own career, these things were on the ropes. Yeah. until Hiss was convicted. And not only did it give kind of the media and everyone else something more to go on, but it really, I think, emboldened the right in the sense of, see, we knew it. We knew it. Yeah. And it gave, I think, new life to the Red Scare in a particularly 
partisan form and a particularly ugly form in the person of Joseph McCarthy. Because then you have February 1950, Joseph McCarthy's wheeling West Virginia speech in which he had the supposed list of communists. He's holding it in his hands. Right. Well, you know, to people out there, maybe it seems all the more plausible because yeah. someone had just been convicted of perjury who was at Yalta, who was in the upper rings of the State Department, right? right. Who had, I think he'd been very involved in kind of some of the the United Nations first years, yep. right? And their charter yep. and, you know, organizing the big conference in San Francisco. It gave new life to something that everyone involved, and this is very clear in Sam Tannenhaus's book, the thing was about to be shut down. Yeah, it was about to be over. I think that's totally right, Matt. I think the the degree to which Nixon hitched his wagon, his political wagon, to chambers cannot be overstated. He had this relationship with, what's the, what's the Catholic priest? Yes. One reason Nixon tended to believe chambers and kind of went all in on it is there was, this gives me some shame, I suppose, as a Catholic, but Father Cronin who was a kind of anti-communist Catholic in D.C., who was feeding Nixon stuff from the FBI and kind of his own files even, just another kind of connection to the broader Know Your Enemy universe. The first place I encountered this priest was uh, in Gary Wills's Nixon Agonistas. He goes back and shows what a key figure he was for Nixon in, during Nixon's early years in Washington, D.C. Yeah, so Nixon had... Besides Chambers, a belief that there, that this communist conspiracy got, went deeper than other people on the committee wanted to admit, and certainly the liberal establishment wanted to admit. It's also worth saying that listeners might, they're very intelligent, they probably already picked up on this. Chambers and Nixon, they share some traits. I mean, Tannenhaus writes, Nixon, too, was an introvert determined to play a role in history. Nixon, too, <laughs> was painfully aware of the charm he lacked and diligently compensated for it by means of his extraordinary intelligence. Nixon, too, harbored secret depths of loneliness and compassion. Nixon, too, was an unpacific Quaker who saw life in psychodramatic <laughs> terms of struggle and conflict. I mean, these guys are really similar. It makes sense yeah. that they saw eye to eye. And Hiss is the kind of person Nixon just loved to hate. Yes, absolutely. There's a story about Hiss meeting Nixon where, for, for some reason, there's a discussion of where people went to college. And Hiss says something like, John Hopkins and Harvard Law. And he says, and I think you went to Whittier? <laughs> of course, Nixon hated Hiss. Then he identified with Chambers. They really are the same kind of, and we, you guys have listened to our, our Nixon Agonistas episode, this kind of pain, troubled, tormented, self-abnegating figure. They really got each other, and they continued to get along. I think what's interesting is the sort of intervention of McCarthy into this dynamic, because yes. Chambers liked Nixon because even as he saw him as a total comrade in the war against communism, he saw that he relied on the evidence. You know, At least at the time, his commitment was, we need to win this by proving. I mean, Nixon was highly competent, almost too competent for his own good. Because one reason his reputation was so on the line is, you know, Nixon, of course, was feeding stuff to the media. It was like a mix of like FBI giving stuff to this priest, giving it to Nixon, who'd give it to the press. The press would give stuff to Nixon. There would be things in hearings that were not public that were then in the press the next day. Everyone yeah, knew yeah, Nixon yeah. was giving it to the press. Tricky dick. Yeah. I feel like saying, too, he was 
you know, trained as a lawyer. And his yeah. performance in some of these hearings was impressive. And it did make me think, just kind of as an aside here, we now live in an age in which now that the Republicans are running the House, they have the weaponization of the government committee yeah. or whatever, right? I just want to say it is 100% impossible, utterly impossible, to imagine someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene operating with Nixon savvy and competence in these kind of hearings, right? Like yeah. it worked because Nixon wasn't crazy. It yeah. worked because Nixon wasn't an idiot. It worked because he he stu- he would stay up all night studying. I mean, we said that in the Nixon Agonistas episode, right? Like you, one thing you can't say about Nixon is that he was lazy or dumb or unintelligent. Tannenhaus even writes about how they were so close that Chambers would be giving Nixon recommendations to read, like in the canon of, of Marxism, you know, so that then then Nixon would be like giving an interview and talking about like, you know, Lenin's theory of revolution and yes, yes, uh, yes. the conflict between Bukharin and Stalin. And like, like Nixon, like had that kind of studiousness. Yes. His greatest attribute was his steel ass. He could sit in the chair and fucking read, man. You know? As he would say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that was all that. There. But then McCarthy comes in and it's like we've already pointed to is that they really are grasping at straws with the exception of what Chambers can provide at this point. And so McCarthy really doesn't have that much to go on. What he's going on is the affective anger of, from his perspective, this kind of American majority, this normal majority that's disgusted by this elite, which has given free reign to the communists, free reign. Yeah. Free reign to the communists because they think they know what's best and because they don't really care about what true American values consist of. And McCarthy is riding the fumes of the anti-communist crusade of the red of the Red Scare to prominence. And it speaks well of Chambers that he... He did not like McCarthy. He didn't like McCarthy. I mean... It started more ambiguous, and then his dislike for him grew. Exactly. And and and, and Sam Tannhouse does point to at least one example where, in Chambers' post-his career, where basically the red carpet is rolled out for him to be a professional anti-communist witness on behalf of anti-communism, where at least once... He does result in the unfair, unjustified persecution of a non-communist. O. Edmund Club was branded a security risk and eventually forced to leave the State Department because of something that Chambers told to some committee or some FBI agent or another. But for the most part, Chambers did not engage in the, the life of a professional ex-communist in terms of informing on every single person he might have. And there were figures like people like Louis Budins and John Lautner, like former communists who testified dozens of times. Anybody who wanted them (laughs) could get them to come show up and name a bunch of names. And Chambers maintained this kind of anxiety about putting people through what he had gone through and what he had put his through. And despite the fact that he thought, as we will talk about with Witness, this was a twilight struggle between goodness and evil, between God and man, that he resented that McCarthy seemed to be so imprecise in his attacks and didn't rely on evidence in every case. Yes. And so he turned, he did turn against McCarthy. Yes. Now, I think there are two books that really, I think, are important to talk about 
in terms of Chambers' I don't want to say move toward the right, but his involvement with the movement conservatism. One, of course, is his own book, Witness, which we've talked about kind of throughout the podcast, published in 1952. It was a bestseller. It was a New York Times bestseller. He made a lot of money from it. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's one reason I think he didn't have to become a certain kind of professional anti-communist in one sense, in the kind of cheapest sense that you're, you were describing earlier, Sam. For example, a publication that no one really cares about now or knows about, but back then it was a huge, you know, millions of subscribers, the Saturday Evening Post. They serialized sections of it for $75,000. That's, yeah. the, that's money then. <laughs> it was a bunch. It was a lot of money. And it's one of those moments where it's kind of like when we would read and discuss uh, Norman Pedoritz's Making It, and he would talk about getting $25,000 for like a New Yorker story, <laughs> right? Yeah. My God, you really could make a pretty good living as a writer back in the day. But Witness was a book that uh, kind of, as we've alluded to earlier, was galvanizing for young conservatives. The number of conservatives who you can point to who say, I read Witness and dot, 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 right, you know, right, right. it's just remarkable. It, it's, it's a book that seemed to articulate for people, especially those with a bit of a taste for the apocalyptic already or people who were already kind of convinced. It rendered what they already knew in the most dramatic gargantuan terms imaginable, right? Yeah, this is a book that provides, as we've alluded to already, this whole kind of blueprint for what the conservative anti-communist position is going to be. I think it's George Nash's assessment. George Nash, author of The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, 1945 to whenever the latest edition is. Yeah, Nash's assessment is that Witness provides three crucial things to the conservative movement. One is the sense of this titanic struggle, right? It's all-consuming. It's militant. The way that Chambers writes about the struggle between the West and the communist East is as a sort of struggle for the future of the world. You can't overstate the importance of being militantly committed to the Western project, the capitalist project. So there's that, the titanic struggle. There's a second thing is this religious dimension, which is so pervasive in witness. It's man versus God. It's reason versus revelation. It's Christendom versus atheism. Right. Yes. What Chambers suggests is that communism, it, it begins with Satan in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Satan in the Garden of it's, Eden. Communism is the second oldest faith, which is to say right. it's Satan whispering to Adam and Eve, ye can be as gods. Right. Exactly. That man's intelligence is actually superior to the divine and that man can make his own utopia, that man can make his own life without the intercedence of divine authority. And then the final thing which follows from that is the continuity between liberalism and communism, yes. which Chambers was always alluding to throughout Witness, which is that if liberalism is the product of the kind of triumph of reason over revelation, liberalism is the product of the enlightenment, of the idea that man's intelligence is actually the decisive force in the world over divine order, divine intelligence, then communism is in fact the truest expression of the liberal aspiration because communism denies God and communism says that we can plan a utopia on earth 
it's very in keeping with a lot of things that were in the in the air in the nascent conservative movement at the time. Eric Vogelin wrote in 1952, if liberalism is understood as the imminent salvation of man and society, communism certainly is its most radical expression. Yes. Vogelin, who Buckley lifted the line, the immunitization of the eschaton from. Yeah. And I think that's really important because, I mean, a, a great kind of troubling thing about this whole period we're talking about here is like how to classify the non-communist leftist, the non-communist liberal. In fact, you know, the whole story of the Hiss case to a degree is like, well, how did these liberals respond to it. And Chambers's insight is there's a continuum from liberalism to communism. And they're all fallen. They're all the enemy. Was it Chambers who used the line that socialism is just communism with its uh, claws retracted? I don't know if that was Chambers, <laughs> but, but it could be. That's the sentiment. That's the sentiment. I mean, there's a passage in Witness defining the history of liberalism where he says... It challenges man to prove by his acts that he is the masterwork of the creation, by making thought and act one. It challenges him to prove it by using the force of his rational mind to end the bloody meaningless of man's history, by giving it purpose and a plan. It challenges him to prove it by reducing the meaningless chaos of nature, by imposing his rational will to order abundance, security, peace. It is the vision of materialism. So, like, that is a way of just alighting the distinction between the communist dream and the liberal project. And that is so crucial. Yes. And I think to kind of build off that, it's something I was thinking about a lot as we were preparing for this, which is the way in which it kind of imprinted itself on the conservative psyche, the right wing psyche in a way, because nothing is ever just a discrete issue or contest right it's always blown up into the grandest metaphysical terms yeah so the his chambers contest was not simply two men with these experiences who found themselves in this situation kind of testifying one against the other they were stand-ins for a grander battle yeah. right uh, a spiritual battle metaphysical battle and we kind of still see that right like nothing's ever just what it is the issues the right seizes upon are always kind of immediately vaunted to ultimate significance and i think yeah. you know this is where chambers it's very interesting we're going to get to his kind of relationship with buckley and national review in a moment but i think this is where in his kind of practical politics he's not always that crazy you know, he was he was kind of rather sensible, but his rhetoric is so yeah. extraordinary, especially in witness. Yes, yes. I think we got to read from the end of the letter to his children. Again, it's the introduction to the book. And in the last paragraph of it, he kind of is addressing his children directly. And he's saying, remember when we would go through walks in the woods, in the bright and sunny parts, you'd run ahead of me. But in the dark parts of the forest, you'd grab my hand. And here's where I'll pick up. He says, in this book, I am again giving you my hands. I am leading you, not through cool pine woods, but up and up a narrow defile between bare and steep rocks, from which in shadow things uncoil and slither away. It will be dark, but in the end, if I have led you aright, you will make out three crosses, from two of which hang thieves. I will have brought you to Golgotha, the place of skulls. This is the meaning of the journey. Before you understand, I may not be there. 
my hands may have slipped from yours. It will not matter. For when you understand what you see, you will no longer be children. You will know that life is pain, that each of us hangs always upon the cross of himself. And when you know this is true of every man, woman, and child on earth, you will be wise. Your father. (laughs) That's not the peration at the end. That's the fucking intro. Incredible. And that was, of course, the part I read on my bed in that lakeside cabin at age 22 and said, I need a beer. (laughs) Well, and I I, I think this is crucial. I think that, and I think that part of the book is is maybe the essence of it. And I think it's the essence of the ex-communist temperament, especially if they become an ally of the right afterwards. There's a great passage from Arthur Cussler's contribution to The God That Failed, which came out, I think it came out in 1949. And Chambers declined to contribute to it. Yeah, well, maybe because he was like, I'm going to write Witness, and it's going to be my own thing. I mean, yeah. he, he, he loved Cussler. They became friends. Cussler admired him a great deal. When Chambers sent Witness to Cussler, he took a month to read it, and then he responded, I felt so close that I don't feel the need to apologize for not having answered your letter. There are books which, if they had remained unwritten, would leave a hole in the world. And then Kessler wrote to Andre Malraux, another ex-communist novelist, saying of Chambers, he is one of the most outstanding, most maligned, and most sincere characters whom I have met. And his story is a bizarre and symbolic 20th century martyrdom. He lives in terrible physical and spiritual loneliness, and a line from you will mean very much to him. Malraux read the book and agreed to write to Chambers, and he wrote to him, you are one of those who did not return from hell with empty hands, about witness. But anyway, I wanted to read this passage from Kussler from his contribution to The God That Failed, The God That Failed, which is a collection of essays by ex-communists describing their conversion to communism and their deconversion. He writes, as a rule, our memories romanticize the past, but when one has renounced a creed or been betrayed by a friend, the opposite mechanism sets to work. In the light of that later knowledge, the original experience loses its innocence, becomes tainted and rancid in a recollection. I have tried in these pages to recapture the mood in which my experiences in the Communist Party related were originally lived, and I know that I have failed. Irony, anger, and shame kept intriguing. The passions of that time seemed transformed into perversions, its inner certitude into the closed universe of the drug addict. The shadow of barbed wire lies across the condemned playground of memory. Those who were caught by the great illusion of our time and have lived through its moral and intellectual debauch either give themselves up to a new addiction of the opposite type or are condemned to pay with a lifelong hangover. And I think Kussler there, even maybe despite himself, captures some of the the pathos of the ex-communist, which Chambers maybe represents even more than himself, which is he gives himself over to an addiction of the opposite type, at least in witness, in order to justify what he has done as a communist. He has to embrace this twilight struggle of the godly against the atheistic East and conceive of himself as a martyr, a pilgrim, a Puritan, in order to continue to live in spite of what he feels at every moment, which is this kind of pain and nonsense of his suffering. <laughs> I feel like that that kind of language in witness, which is the most compelling language in the book, but also which provides the most kind of extreme 
blueprint for the conservative movement that was about to embrace him is also a product of that kind of pain, the spurned lover, the, the, yes. the, the former convert, the twice born, as people would say, of the former communists. Yeah. Well, I mean, the twice born psyche, that's from William James, and variety is a religious experience. But also, yeah. you know, of all the terms you use, there's one more I would add to describe Chambers, and that is the prophet. Right. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to me. Now, here I'm drawing from his letters to Buckley or maybe Willie Schlamm and Buckley from 1954. It's a direct reference to witness. This is what Chambers says. I have for years been fascinated by the book of Jonah. And I said to a few at the time that this was the pattern of the Hiss case. Therefore, in a sense, I fled to Tarshish with dread words in my ears. Go up to Nineveh, that great city, etc., but when the tempest rose and it became a question of myself or the crew, I had also to say, take me up and cast me into the sea, because it is for my sake that this trouble has come upon you. Hmm. That is why Jonah's words in the belly of the whale also appear in the Wall Street Journal passage in Witness, by intention, the only biblical quote in the book. But in the end, I did go into Nineveh, and when nothing really happened, nothing did, and when the ADA worms and others, Amer- mean Americans, <laughs> yeah, Americans for Democratic Action, I think, yeah, yeah, uh, liberal group. He said, but in the end, I did go into Nineveh, and nothing really happened. Nothing did. And when the ADA worms and others had eaten up the cucumber vine, this is so complicated. And God asked, "Do you well to be angry?" I answered, and still answer, "I do well to be angry, even unto death, for I always knew that, as we would say, you cannot turn back the clock of history." Now, Mm. whatever that meant to listeners, it's so fascinating to me that Chambers identifies himself with the prophet Jonah. Jonah. Remember, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to, they need to repent, right? Yeah. And Jonah resists. And he, he, in fact, gets on a ship to go to Tarshish. But because of the storm and the sea, God was punishing the whole crew. And so Jonah says, throw me into the sea, where he's swallowed by the great fish, the great whale. And three days and three nights, he's in the belly of the whale, and then is spit out onto the sea. And then he goes to Nineveh and tells them to repent, and they do. And God spares them. Now, uh, what's fascinating about this is that that's a passage that Jesus in the New Testament particularly identifies with names, right? right? But also, it's so fascinating because kind of the point of it here is that like a nation can repent at the heeding of the prophet and and be, be saved from damnation. And so that clearly, I think, is a glimpse into Chambers's psyche and kind of what he thought his role was. And it's it's one of those things that has great religious pathos. It's kind of powerful, but it's also... It's extreme. It's extreme, and to view yourself as that prophet is really something. And he kind of thinks he's like an anti-Jonah, that we're not going to heed his prophecies. Yes, and exactly. We're, and we, we will not turn from our sin, and we will not be saved. He's joined the losing side. That's what he keeps saying when he leaves communism for the West, for democracy or whatever for freedom he says i'm i'm joining the losing side i think he can't imagine that he would be on the winning side <laughs> but there's a really fascinating review of the god that failed from 1950 by isaac deutscher the great biographer of trotsky yeah he wrote a two-part biography of trotsky a biography of stalin he himself was sort of a trotskyist not particularly reconstructed ever but he wrote about the God that failed, and he really did seem to have the number of the ex-communist in a way. 
And he's not writing explicitly about Chambers because Chambers hasn't written a witness yet, but he knows of his testimony. He knows the type. (laughs) Yeah, he knows the type. There's a portion where he writes, the picture of communism and Stalinism that the ex-communist draws is that of a gigantic chamber of intellectual and moral horrors. Viewing it, the uninitiated are transferred from politics to pure demonology. Sometimes the artistic effect may be strong. Horrors and demons do enter into many a poetic masterpiece, but it is politically unreliable and even dangerous. Of course, the story of Stalinism abounds in horror, but this is only one of its elements, and even this, the demonic, has to be translated into the terms of human motives and interests. The ex-communist does not even attempt the translation. I mean, I think that's Uh right. I mean, like, certainly, certainly Chambers has an insight about what communism is for a person like him and why it was effective working on his psyche and why he was willing to do the things that he did and what he fears about what it would impose on the world. But, and this is where Deutscher kind of goes even a further step, which I think is even more brilliant, is that the ex-communist depicts himself as, as you know, sort of uniquely capable of understanding what the enemy is and how to respond to them. And there's something a little perverse about that. So Deutscher writes, with equal right, a sufferer from traumatic shock might claim that he is the only one who really understands wounds and surgery. The most that the intellectual ex-communist knows or rather feels is his own sickness. But he is ignorant of the nature of the external violence that has produced it, let alone the cure. You know, I mean... Of course, someone like Chambers is deeply traumatized by what the party has done to him. His friends. To his friends. But does that mean that he understands what communism is or what, how a, a nation should respond to it? Or that his trauma, his tra- you know, to use the terms of, of today, that his, the way in which it has traumatized him actually gives him unique insight as opposed to a kind of blinded perspective on what it means and how one should respond to it. I'm not sure. I think it's an interesting insight. And Deutscher goes even further to say that, in a way, the ex-communist of a certain type, he rallies to defense of capitalism and, and brings to this job the lack of scruple, the narrow-mindedness, the disregard for truth, and the intense hatred with which Stalinism has imbued him. He is an inverted Stalinist. Now, I think that's wow. maybe going too far. Especially in Chambers' case. In some, I think so. It captures something. I think this, this part is well-spoken. And, and again, he isn't writing about Chambers. He's writing about the people who had taken up this position before. He says, he continues to see the world in white and black, but now the colors are differently distributed. As a communist, he saw no difference between fascists and social democrats. As an anti-communist, he sees no difference between Nazism and communism. Once he accepted the party's claim to infallibility, now he believes himself to be infallible. Having once been caught by the greatest illusion, he is now obsessed by the greatest disillusionment of our time. Yes. I mean, there are moments in Witness where he's Jonah, he's the anti-Jonah, he is the witness who stands for and against, he is a pilgrim and a prophet, and, and he is the only one who can see the truth. If people don't listen to him, then the world is doomed. If they do, then perhaps the world, the good world, might survive. That's all there, even as I am so compelled by so much of what Chambers writes. As rhetoric, it's stunning. But to your point, Sam, National Review is founded in 1955. In 1956, Khrushchev gives his speech on Stalin's crimes. 
right? And in yeah. the, and I believe it was in the pages of National Review. It was James Burnham and Willie Schlamm who debated what that meant. And it was Burnham saying, no, this is something a little different. We need yeah. to adjust to this. And Schlamm, another ex-communist, deeper in than Burnham, I think, was. You know, Burnham was, was a friend of Trotsky's. Never a Stalinist, yeah. Right, yeah. And Chambers took Schlamm's side. He said he was impressed, of course, with Burnham's, the rigor of his thinking, the logic of his mind. But when the facts on the ground kind of shifted, Chambers really had trouble adjusting to it, I think. And for precisely the reasons you've been outlining. I mean, I think when he writes Witness, I think the Deutscher analysis, which comes before he's even read Witness, seems right in a way. You know, Daniel Bell, in the end of Ideology, Daniel Bell writes, Ours, a twice-born generation, finds its wisdom in pessimism, evil, tragedy, and despair. We are both old and young before our time. I think the ex-communist is so essentially the kind of protagonist of this moment in ways that make them far-seeing and myopic. <laughs> yes. Well, I said there were two books that we were kind of going to close out on. Witness is one. And the second of which is what brings Chambers into contact with Buckley and then into the National Review orbit, which is Buckley and Brent Bozell's McCarthy and His Enemies. And I, I briefly alluded to this earlier that the publisher of that book, Henry Regnery, sent a copy to Chambers, and of course he refused to blurb it. But his refusal was what kind of started his correspondence with Buckley. We mentioned kind of Chambers's ambiguity towards McCarthy, and there's a, a passage from one of his letters I just want to read. He has a great line about McCarthy, where he says, McCarthy was always made to order, which is to say made to order to unite the left and split the right. And he says, he is a man fighting almost wholly by instinct and intuition against forces, for the most part, coldly conscious of their ways, means, and ends. In other words, he scarcely knows what he is doing. He <laughs> simply knows that somebody threw a tomato in the general direction from which it came. <laughs> His general tactic might be epitomized in Samson's bright thought of setting fire to the fox's tails and setting them helter-skelter against the enemy, a tactic not altogether rolled out in a minor skirmish in a guerrilla war, but it is not a strategy and repetition dooms it, not only to defeat, but to boredom. <laughs> Meaning mm -hmm. he thought McCarthy was just an ignorant bore who had no fucking clue what he was doing. I mean, he feared that McCarthy was a greater danger to the anti-communist cause than to communists themselves. Precisely. I think at some point he even suggested maybe McCarthy represented some kind of indigenous American fascist impulse, which he maintained a concern about. Yes, yes. So he did not like Buckley's book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he says these things in these letters like... You've made the best possible case for McCarthy's position, but it's sort of damning with faint praise. But clearly, Buckley was very solicitous of Chambers to become a part of National Review. Yes. Because Willie Schlamm was kind of in on the ground floor, right? And, and so the three of them had this kind of ongoing conversation about like what the nature of what became National Review, what it would be, what its kind of line would be. There's a great moment where Chambers says something like, I bet a good magazine of conservatism, there's half a million people who would subscribe to it, <laughs> which it, I, I guess, you know, in theory, I can imagine that. But of course, National Review, I think even at its high watermark, 
that overshoots it quite a bit. So there was these kind of negotiations over whether Chambers would be a part of National Review when it was founded in 1955. Buckley desperately wanted him to be on the masthead and to write for it. And he ends up not really joining the crowd, but he finally was prevailed upon in 1957. So from 1957 to 1959, Chambers is a senior editor at National Review. And uh, I think we just should just talk about that yeah. a little bit because he wrote at least one of the most famous articles National Review ever published, but also his correspondence with Buckley through the years. Yeah. To me, actually, it's funny, the extremity of Chambers's rhetoric that we've been just highlighting, the kind of prophetic character of it, it can kind of cut in two directions. If you pose things in those terms, it can either make you view ends and means as like whatever means is necessary to achieve certain ends, right? It it kind of justifies it and vouchsafes for it. Or it can say things are so dire that actually you should do what you can with what you have in this moment. It can be so radical, it mitigates towards a kind of pragmatism. And in his last years, in the second half of the 1950s, that was actually the role Chambers played, kind of whispering in Buckley's ear. I totally agree. I think most of what we said would position Chambers to be the kind of converted Bolshevik, a Bolshevik on behalf of the right. And I think that a lot of what he wrote in Witness has continued to be an inspiration to people who want to be Bolsheviks on behalf of the right. That if the struggle is as doomed and... Metaphysical. (laughs) Metaphysical, right. You know, it's so funny to think about Buckley sort of taking from Vogelin to don't immunitize the eschaton. Chambers immunitizes the eschaton on every single page of Witness. (laughs) The eschaton (laughs) is here, right? This is Armageddon. The forces of good and evil are right here. But that doesn't actually, as you're saying, it doesn't really comport with how he reemerged as a public intellectual in the National Review years. And it doesn't comport with his anxiety about signing his name to the National Review masthead. And it is like exactly as you say, this kind of unqualified religious certainty, which he applies to his life and his, his metaphysics, his morality, his ethics at the end of his life, that it can lead to self-aggrandizement or it can lead to humility. And because of the sort of man Chambers is, it leads to humility. Even as he like lathers himself up, (laughs) right? You know, into kind of self-certainty and self-aggrandizement in his writing. Impulsively, he is the sort of self-abnegating monk, the uncertain, the humble. And he he goes back to that place, I think, in his contributions to the National Review line and his discomforts with its self-certainty as it's sort of begins to be articulated in the, in the late 1950s. I think one of the most moving parts of Tannenhaus's book is it only lasts for three months, I think, where, you know, Chambers is at the end of his life, very unhealthy, not well, doesn't really have the energy or the fortitude to do all that much. But there's a moment where he decides, once he's agreed to be a part of the masthead, I want to go in to the office. For the the big editorial meetings on Tuesdays or whatever. Yeah. And it it is so charming, him coming in to, he decides he's going to come into National Review, he's coming up from his farm. And, you know, for a lot of these young writers who are a part of the scene, National Review scene, 
Chambers is this, like we've said for young conservatives later on, he's, he's kind of this saint, not a real man. But he comes into the office and suddenly he is a real man and he's not the like exclusively gloomy prophet. He's actually kind of funny. He's funny. He makes jokes at Buckley's expense. I was trying to think like, what would it be like for me? It would have been something like if Gary Wills had showed up at a Commonwealth editorial meeting, <laughs> you know, yeah. Gary Wills in his 80s or something. I'll just read Tannenhaus. This is in page 504 of this biography. <laughs> he says, To his new colleagues, Chambers' arrival was a momentous event. He was a giant, the patron saint of the anti-communist faith they all shared. But they had no idea what to expect. Some envisioned a walking edition of Witness, a fount of apocalyptic utterances. Even Buckley was nervous. At Chambers' first editorial meeting, the editor, meaning Buckley, finishing a convoluted sentence, turned to Chambers deferentially and asked, Don't you agree, Whitaker? <laughs> Up to a point, Lord, Chambers replied, <laughs> dryly quoting William Boot, the hapless journalist in Evelyn Waugh's scoop. The room erupted. I damn near fell on the floor laughing, recalled Jim McFadden, National Review's associate publisher. I hadn't realized that he had such a tremendous sense of humor. Of course, every one of those guys had read Evelyn Waugh. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, of course, of course. That was, that's the unstated premise there. They've all been <laughs> diligently reading Waugh. <laughs> no, I love it. This is really one of the sweet moments because like I said earlier, like Chambers is not at peace anywhere. He's not at peace when he's a communist. He's not at peace at home with his destructive family. He's not at peace when he abandons them and he's hiding his communist past. When he's at Time Magazine, he's not at peace when he informs on his former friends. He hates it. But in a way, finding himself at National Review at this moment, I think he is at peace in a way. It's 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 yes, a new it's a new first of all, it's a new faith. And they're comrades, you know, they're comrades again. And I think uh, something that Tannenhaus identifies or he understands in this account is that Chambers was profoundly lonely. He was a sort of man who embraced solitude, that he became a very private person, embraces a sort of monastic life, but not because he prefers his own company to the company of others, but because he feels that he doesn't deserve companionship. <laughs> he doesn't thrive on solitude entirely. It's because he, because he fears imposing himself, burdening himself on others, and to have this moment at the end of his life where he's surrounded by these young men who, who love him and who admire him and who admire his intellect and just uh -huh. want to listen to him. I think he deserved it, and I'm happy that he got it. <laughs> you know, I, I think, too, we've used the word monastic a lot, but I, I think there's also a sense in which, and this gets to the bit of ambiguity in his politics at the end here, is he was a mystic, almost pantheistic. That's why he loved farming. He found God in trees and fields and working the land. And there's two more quotes from his letters I want to read, one of which gets at this political ambiguity. And this is from the letters between August 1954 and September 1955. So this is when they're kind of hashing out the vision of National Review. And this was in a letter to, to Willie Schlamm, but he sent a copy of it to Buckley because he said, Bill, this letter is really addressed to both of you. And he is talking about what he calls the conservative position, capital C, capital P. And he says, for, of course, our fight, as I think we said, is only incidentally with socialists or other heroes of that kidney. <laughs> he goes, essentially, it is with machines. 
a conservatism that cannot face the facts of the machine and mass production and its consequences in government and politics is foredoomed to futility and petulance. A conservatism that allows for them has an 11th hour chance of rallying what is sound in the West. This gets to that weird pragmatism, right? He goes, all else is a dream. And as Helmuth von Moltke remarked about universal peace, not a very sweet dream at that. (laughs) But he goes, this is the key part here. He goes, this is, of course, the Beaconsfield position. Inevitably, it goads one's brothers to raise their knives against the man who holds it. Sadder yet, that man can never blame them, for he shares their feelings, even when directed against himself, since he, no less than they, is also a Tory. And here's the key part, though. Only he is a Tory who means to live, and to live is to not hold the lost readout. To live is to maneuver. The choices of maneuver are now visibly narrow. They chiefly enjoin defying the enemy by occupying or capturing that part of his position which reality, many realities, have defined as settled for this historical period, thereby splitting the enemy, immobilizing and confusing, if not winning, part of his forces. I should have stood with Lenin, not with Trotsky, Redick, and Bukharin about Brest-Litovsk. In the matter of Social Security, for example, the masses of Americans, like the Russian peasants in 1918, are signing the peace with their feet. The farmers are signing for a socialist agriculture with their feet. And this ends up being kind of a defense of social security and farm subsidies and things like that. But that line, to live is to maneuver, that's the essence of Chambers' contribution to National Review. He remained dialectical to the end. He said, you can't turn back the clock. Maybe this is my words, not his. You can throw yourself against the machinery of the clock, but you cannot stop time. Yeah, it's so well said. I mean, I, I think the thing is, the thing that identifies a change from his perspective when he wrote Witness from the time when he was working for National Review and in that, and that ironically might be a product of the, the fellow feeling, the feeling of life and possibility that he experienced by being a part of a group of men and feeling loved and a part of a community of intellects again that changed is that when he writes Witness, I think the idea that being a Tory who lives, <laughs> that, that, that being committed to, to life that really was foreign to him when he wrote Witness. Yes. He almost killed himself like three times in that book. He did commit suicide once with like rat poison or tried to. And yes. like the rag fell off his face and he woke up in the morning a little sick, but he was alive. And as he writes over and over again, like the reason that communism is likely to win is that it gives men a thing to die for and a thing to live for. And he fears that the West's feeble liberal democracy does not give people a reason to live for and a reason to die for. It is so bleak and he feels on the verge of giving up at all times in his life. Yes. And so for him to, at the end of his life, to be making a case for like pragmatism in pursuit of life. Doing what you need to keep living. Doing what you need to keep living. I think that was foreign to him until that exact moment. Here's another passage that I think is alien to the kind of sensibility that really shaped National Review. We hear so much about saving Western civilization, right? That kind of stuff. This is another letter from the same period, the 54 to 55 period, where he says, the enemy, he is ourselves. (laughs) That is why it is idle to talk about preventing the wreck of Western civilization. It is already a wreck from within. 
That is why we can hope to do little more now than snatch a fingernail of a saint from the rack or a handful of ashes from the faggots and bury them secretly in a flower pot. Not a pumpkin patch, but a flower pot. (laughs) Against the day, ages hence, when a few men begin again to dare to believe that there was once something else, that something else is thinkable and needs some evidence of what it was, and the fortifying knowledge that there were those who, at the great nightfall, took loving thought to preserve the tokens of hope and truth. (laughs) Yeah. Right? It's like the the oddments of cloth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. 100%. So this is, again, I don't mean to negate what we were just saying about witness, but this this late in life, mystical, deeply Christian. It's funny, when he became a communist, when he became kind of a radical, it was kind of through like, he loved Tolstoy, right? The Tolstoy right. of the kingdom of God is within you. He loved Hugo. He loves Dostoevsky. Sam, you mentioned earlier the deeply European literary influences on him. It's, I think, the kind of peculiar genius of Chambers was to kind of smash together Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and these kind of European literary influences with American Puritanism. Yes, yes. That is, yes, that yes. is Whitaker Chambers. Yeah, American witness, the idea yes. of a witness. Tannenhaus likens him to the great American Jeremiah's, like <laughs> Winthrop, Mather, the anti-slavery Jeremiah's, John Brown, William Lloyd Garrison. He writes that Witness is best read as, quote, a, a political sermon proffered by an everyman pilgrim, one of us only more so because he has gone further than we ever dared. As Chambers writes in Witness, out of weakness and folly, but also out of my strength, I committed the characteristic crimes of my century. This is the sense in which it's an American book, right? Yes. Like in many senses, it, it, its influences are European, but in the sense that it has this kind of conflation of the religious and the political, that there is actually no distinction to be made. That's such a, a profoundly American intuition. Yes. And to use the religious in order to make a claim about the political. Hard to argue with. Well, we should probably close out here. Yes. We've been going for a while. But I want to read one more thing from him, his final letter to Bill Buckley. And of course, I, I mentioned at the start that Chambers died on July 9th, 1961 at the age of 60. A few months before that, he had kind of wanted to take he and his wife, Esther, on kind of a long drive into the South. He wanted to see the South again. Because remember, that early trip down to New Orleans, right? He wanted to kind of go back south. And of course, the Buckleys, I think it was Buckley's mother, his mother's side was from South Carolina. So Buckley offered for Chambers and his wife, Esther, to stay at their place in Charleston. And at the last minute, I think Chambers just knew he didn't have the energy in him, right, to do it. So he called it off, but he was worried he'd kind of offended Bill. But it produced this gorgeous last letter. He says this, this is dated April 9th, 1961. Again, his final letter to Bill Buckley. He says, dear Bill, you meant to do something generous and beautiful, and we seem to dash it back in your face. It was bound to seem that way. In fact, it wasn't that way. Weariness, Bill, you cannot yet know literally what it means. I wish no time would come when you do know but the balance of experience is against it. (laughs) One day, long hence, you will know true weariness and will say, that was it. And then just a little bit later on in the letter, he says, our kind of weariness. History hit us with a freight train. History has been long doing this to people, 
monotonously and usually lethally, but we, my general breed, tried, as Strachey noted, to put ourselves together again. I think we'll leave it to the listeners to to decide just how well Whitaker Chambers put himself together again after being hit by the freight train of history. But there's something in his mystical ending and his cautionary comments and advice to Buckley and National Review that you kind of look at them and you say he was onto something. And had Buckley kind of taken the Chambers path of the Beaconsfield position of maneuvering to live, who knows what kind of magazine National Review would have been or kind of how the right might have turned out. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, I, I hope that we've made this clear is that Chambers at the end of his life was really an ill fit for the kind of National Review that was forming around him and that was using his kind of moral authority to justify itself in the world. He was unwilling to totally go along with it. I mean, I, I think we've mentioned on the podcast before that he wrote Ayn Rand out of the conservative movement. Yes, that was his most famous piece for National Review in those in those two years between 57 and 59. But basically, at the end, the very end of his life, for the first time maybe ever, right, he found moderation as a solace. Yeah, you know, yes. He had moved from the far left to the far right and always needed this kind of architecture of certainty to justify himself to the world and to himself. And at the very end, he found a sense of, you know, from a conservative perspective, we might say sort of Burkean maneuverability. He found the grace of God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And from a much more important perspective, he f- did find the grace of God. Whitaker Chambers, a prophet without honor in his own movement. That's right. That is right. I don't think you can, I mean, listeners, hopefully you will read Tenenhouse's biography and you'll read some of Witness. I don't think you can come away from it without feeling that this was a man who was deeply troubled by what he would call over and over again, the tragedy of history and his position in it. And that kind of preoccupation is is not to be uh, looked upon with disdain. He really was the best of that lot, I would say. I'd agree. I'd agree. All right. Thanks, Matt. That was fun. Thank you, Sam. And uh, thank you, listeners, for bearing with us all this time. (laughs) Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.